Cantor Audio presents Back Channel to Cuba, The Hidden History of Negotiations Between Washington and Havana by William M. Leo Grand and Peter Cornblue Narrated by Robertson Dean Introduction Rebuilding Bridges Our relations are like a bridge in wartime. I'm not going to talk about who blew it up. I think it was you who blew it up. The war has ended and now we are reconstructing the bridge, brick by brick, ninety miles from Key West to Baradero Beach. It is not a bridge that can be reconstructed easily, as fast as it was destroyed. It takes a long time. If both parties reconstruct their part of the bridge, we can shake hands without winners or losers. Raul Castro to Senators George McGovern and James Everesque, April 8, 1977 in early April of 1963, during talks in Havana over the release of Americans being held in Cuban jails as spies, Fidel Castro first broached his interest in improving relations with the United States. If any relations were to commence between the U.S. and Cuba, Castro asked U.S. negotiator James Donovan, how would it come about, and what would be involved? Sent to Cuba in the fall of 1962 by President John F. Kennedy and his brother Robert to undertake the first real negotiations with Cuba's revolutionary regime, Donovan had secured the freedom of more than 1,000 members of the CIA-led Exile Brigade that Castro's forces had defeated at the Bay of Pigs. In addition to the prisoners, Donovan also secured Castro's confidence. Through trips in January, March, and April 1963, he built on that confidence to negotiate the freedom of several dozen U.S. citizens detained after the Revolution. In the respectful nature of their talks, Castro found the first trusted U.S. representative with whom he could seriously discuss how Havana and Washington might move toward restoring civility and normalcy in the dark wake of the Bay of Pigs and the Cuban Missile Crisis. In view of the past history on both sides here, the problem of how to inaugurate any relations was a very difficult one, Castro observed. So I said, now, do you know how porcupines make love? Donovan remembered responding. And he said, no. And I said, well, the answer is, very carefully. And that is how you and the U.S. would have to get into this. As Donovan pursued his shuttle diplomacy during the spring of 1963, some Kennedy administration officials sought to use his special relationship with Castro to begin a dialogue toward ending hostilities with Cuba. Within the CIA, however, others saw a different opportunity, an opportunity to use the negotiations and the negotiator to assassinate Fidel Castro. Knowing that Donovan planned to bring a scuba diving suit as a confidence-building gift for the Cuban leader, members of the Covert Executive Action Unit developed a plot to contaminate the snorkel with tubercle bacillus and poison the wetsuit with a fungus. They tried to use him as the instrument, the lawyer who was negotiating the liberation of the Playa Hiron prisoners, Castro exclaimed years later. Only the intervention of Donovan's CIA handlers, Milan Miskovsky and Frank DeRosa, prevented him from becoming an unwitting would-be assassin. The CIA's infamous assassination plots, exploding conch shells, poison pens, poison pills, sniper rifles, toxic cigars, are the stuff of legend in the history of U.S. policy toward the Cuban Revolution. 
Washington's efforts to roll back the revolution through exile paramilitary attacks, covert action, overt economic embargo, and contemporary democracy promotion programs have dominated and defined more than a half-century of U.S.-Cuban relations. What Henry Kissinger characterized as the perpetual antagonism between Washington and Havana remains among the most entrenched and enduring conflicts in the history of U.S. foreign policy. The Untold Story There is, however, another side to the history of U.S.-Cuban relations, far less known but more relevant today, the bilateral efforts at dialogue, rapprochement, and reconciliation. Every president since Eisenhower has engaged in some form of dialogue with Castro and his representatives. Some talks have been tightly circumscribed, dealing only with specific narrow issues of mutual interest, such as immigration, air piracy, and drug interdiction. Others have been wide-ranging, engaging the full panoply of issues at stake between the two sides. Some episodes of dialogue produced tangible agreements, formal and informal. Others sputtered to a halt with no discernible result. But every U.S. president, Democrat and Republican alike, has seen some advantage in talking to Cuba. Indeed, both Democratic and Republican administrations have engaged in little-known efforts to arrive at a modus vivendi with the Cuban Revolution. After authorizing a paramilitary invasion to overthrow Castro by force and implementing a full trade embargo to cripple the Cuban economy, John F. Kennedy ordered his aides to start thinking along more flexible lines in negotiating a state of peaceful coexistence with Castro. During Gerald Ford's presidency, Henry Kissinger directed his aides to deal straight with Castro and negotiate improved relations like a big guy, not like a shyster. Jimmy Carter actually signed a presidential decision directive to achieve normalization of our relations with Cuba through direct and confidential talks. Given the domestic political sensitivity surrounding any hint of better relations with Havana, these talks, and many other contacts with Cuba, have often been conducted through secret back-channel diplomacy. To maintain plausible deniability, U.S. presidents have turned to third countries, among them Mexico, Spain, Britain, and Brazil, as hosts and facilitators. To limit the political risk of direct contact, Washington and Havana have developed creative clandestine methods of communication, deploying famous literary figures, journalists, politicians, businessmen, and even a former President of the United States as interlocutors. When face-to-face -face talks have been necessary, Cuban and U.S. officials have met furtively in foreign cities such as Paris, Cuernavaca, and Toronto, or in private homes, crowded cafeterias, prominent hotels, and even on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. On several occasions, White House and State Department officials have secretly traveled to Havana to negotiate face-to-face -face with Fidel Castro. Not surprisingly, this rich history of U.S. back-channel diplomacy with Cuba has been shrouded in secrecy, buried in thousands of classified files that record the internal debates, meetings, agendas, negotiations, arguments, and agreements that have transpired over more than half a century. In the absence of an accessible historical record, scholarship and analysis on U.S.-Cuban relations has largely focused on the more prominent and visible history of antagonism skewing the historical debate over whether better ties were possible or even desirable. The dearth of evidence on the many efforts to find common ground has empowered the anti-dialogueros, as one U.S. official called them, 
to cast serious diplomacy with Cuba as an oxymoron at best, a heresy at worst. Long after the end of the Cold War, talking with Cuba remained a delicate and controversial political proposition, even as the benefits have become increasingly obvious to both countries. Back Channel to Cuba This book presents a comprehensive chronicle of the history of dialogue between the United States and Cuba since 1959. The pages that follow are an attempt to assess this historical record of negotiations, both secret and open, at a time when that record is especially pertinent to the political discourse over U.S. relations with Cuba. Both Barack Obama and Raul Castro publicly declared their desire to move beyond the past half-century's legacy of hostility. Both Washington and Havana appeared to realize that international, national, and mutual interests would be advanced by a successful negotiation of normal bilateral ties. But as the history of dialogue shows, having the intention to improve relations and actually accomplishing it are two different things. Between intention and realization lies a long road of negotiation on complex problems. But the past holds lessons for contemporary policymakers on how to navigate that road. How have previous talks evolved between Washington and Havana? Why have some succeeded and others failed? What does this history tell policymakers, scholars, and concerned citizens about the potential for rapprochement between two nations that have been intimate enemies for more than half a century? These are among the key questions explored in this volume. To reconstruct this history, we have spent more than a decade unearthing the classified files through the Freedom of Information Act, mandatory declassification review, and archival research on multiple episodes of dialogue between Washington and Havana. These include the State Department's file Efforts at Negotiation with Cuba from the Eisenhower Administration, Contacts with Cuban Leaders, records compiled during the Kennedy and Johnson administrations, the special activities file kept by Henry Kissinger's office on his top-secret attempt to negotiate normal relations, the Carter administration's roadmap to normalization and memoranda of conversations with Fidel Castro himself, and internal papers from the Clinton White House on engagement with Havana. These records, along with hundreds of others, shed new light on the policies, strategies, and interplay of both governments in their pursuit of better relations. With the documents in hand, we interviewed a broad array of the surviving policymakers and negotiators who drafted the documents and participated in talks, Fidel Castro and former President Jimmy Carter among them, along with the intermediaries who carried messages back and forth between Washington and Havana. Their first-hand accounts bring the documentary record to life, adding a critical human dimension to the story. Indeed, in many ways, this book chronicles the tenacious efforts of key official and non-official policy actors who, for more than 50 years, challenged the national security managers in successive administrations to consider the options of dialogue and engagement over the dominant U.S. approach of antagonism and estrangement. The perennial conflict between U.S. officials who advocated punishing Cuba to force its compliance and those who argued for diplomacy is a recurrent theme of this history. Every administration has had its hawks and doves on Cuba. How they interacted depended, to some degree, on the domestic and international circumstances of the time. At every juncture, efforts at dialogue and their success or failure were a product not only of the state of relations between Washington and Havana, but also of the balance of domestic political forces in the two capitals. 
To the extent possible given space limitations, this book provides and analyzes the political circumstances and context within which bilateral talks took place. Although Fidel Castro's preeminence and dominance meant that policymaking in Havana was less fractious than it was in Washington, the pages that follow reveal that there were debates on the Cuban side as well. Cuban policy was hardly static. Fidel's attitude toward the United States evolved over time. Raul Castro's succession introduced yet another factor, his determination to resolve the revolution's critical outstanding problems, among them relations with the United States, before passing the baton to the next generation of Cuban leaders. For more than half a century, the history of talks has been inextricably intertwined with, and overshadowed by, the more infamous history of acrimony and distrust in U.S.-Cuban relations. Back Channel to Cuba aspires to give the history of dialogue its due. This history provides strong evidence that, despite proceeding very carefully, both the United States and Cuba have long recognized that negotiation and cooperation offer potential benefits over a perpetual state of antagonism and aggression. Our interest is in getting the Cuban issue behind us, not in prolonging it indefinitely. One secret memo, written almost thirty years ago to Henry Kissinger, stated clearly, Our relations are like a bridge in wartime, Raul Castro observed shortly thereafter, describing the damage done by years of hostility. It is not a bridge that can be reconstructed easily, as fast as it was destroyed. It takes a long time. If both parties reconstruct their part of the bridge, we can shake hands without winners or losers. 1. Eisenhower Patience and Forbearance During the first nine months of my stay in Cuba, I did my best to convince Castro and many of his personal advisors of our good intentions. It was not until November of 1959 that I was finally convinced that we could not expect to reach any sort of understanding with him. But even after that, I was in favor of maintaining all possible contacts and exploring all possibilities of negotiation. Ambassador Philip Bonsall, Letter to Arthur Schlesinger, Jr., November 13, 1962 Fidel Castro, in his olive-green fatigues, and acting Secretary of State Christian A. Herter, in his three-piece suit and bow-tie, made an incongruous couple. Castro, on his first trip to the United States since the triumph of the Revolution, met Herter for lunch in the Pan-American room of Washington's luxurious Statler Hilton Hotel, on April 16, 1959. Sitting in front of a large, primitive art mural of a Latin American peasant tilling the soil, they engaged in animated conversation. When Castro pulled out a cigar, Herter lit it for him. Fidel's mood was buoyant. Just four months earlier, he had led an army of bearded guerrillas in the Sierra Maestra of eastern Cuba. Now he was Cuba's new prime minister, having lunch with one of the most powerful officials in the United States government. Events had moved fast in those intervening weeks, certainly faster than Washington had anticipated. Eager to tell Cuba's story, and certain he could sway U.S. opinion by the force of his own conviction, Fidel told Herter of his plans for Cuba and admitted his frustration at his own lack of experience in the practical affairs of governing. He made a plea for patience while he worked to restore order in the aftermath of the revolution. Herter, more than twice Fidel's age, was a seasoned diplomat intent on taking Castro's measure and persuading him that good relations with the United States were in Cuba's best interests. 
What impressed Herter most was Castro's youthful immaturity. He reported to Eisenhower that he was sorry the president had not had a chance to meet Castro, who was a most interesting individual, but very much like a child in many ways. One of the most startling sights, he added, was Castro's eight wild-eyed armed bodyguards who swept into the Pan-American room and sat down on the floor to wait while the official delegations ate lunch. The patrician herder was not comfortable with the disarray of revolutionary change, and in this he would prove to be a faithful representative of his government. During lunch, William Wheeland, director of the Office of Caribbean and Mexican Affairs, was introduced to Castro as the State Department official in charge of Cuban affairs, to which Fidel replied, And I thought I was in charge of Cuban affairs. It was a clever joke, but fraught with symbolism. For half a century, a parade of U.S. presidents and their representatives had acted as if the United States was in charge of Cuban affairs. Fidel, with a smile, was serving notice that this, too, was about to change. Prologue to Revolution Herter's lunch with Castro displayed in microcosm some recurring features of the many dialogues to come between U.S. and Cuban officials. Talks were often guarded, undertaken with a certain reticence because neither side trusted the other's intentions. Sometimes those suspicions were enough in themselves to derail the process. On the U.S. side, positions often reflected an arrogance born of great power hubris and a presumption that U.S. priorities should naturally take precedence over Cuba's. On the Cuban side, positions often reflected a stubborn pride, born of a half-century of domination, that made resistance to U.S. demands a virtue in its own right. One hundred years of tumultuous relations between the two countries weighed heavily on both. During the 19th century, Washington openly coveted Cuba and saw its acquisition as inevitable. As John Quincy Adams famously said in 1823, If an apple severed by its native tree cannot choose but fall to the ground, Cuba can gravitate only towards the North American Union. Although Cuba remained a Spanish possession, its economy and social life were already gravitating toward the United States. Economic ties produced a free flow of people in both directions, carrying with them the artifacts and values of their respective cultures. The culture and national identity of modern Cuba were shaped by this encounter with the United States. The North American presence was ubiquitous, expanding in all directions at once, wrote historian Luis Perez, Jr. At every point that this presence made contact with the prevailing order of Cuban life, almost everywhere, it challenged, it contested, it changed. This pervasive U.S. influence eroded Spanish colonial control and laid the cultural foundation for Cuba's independence movement. But it also posed a threat to Cuba's aspiration to become a free and independent country, as José Martí, the father of Cuban independence, foresaw. Shortly before riding into battle against the Spanish and to his death, Martí wrote, Every day now I am in danger of giving my life for my country and my duty in order to prevent, by the timely independence of Cuba, the United States from extending its hold across the Antilles and falling with all the greater force on the lands of our America. All I have done up to now and all I will do is for that. In 1898, the United States intervened in Cuba's three-year-old War of Independence, quickly defeated the Spanish, and occupied the island until 1902. As the price of independence, Cubans were forced to accept the Platt Amendment to their constitution. 
It gave the United States the right to intervene in Cuba to protect its independence, required Cuba to sell or lease land to the United States for naval bases, the origin of Guantanamo Naval Station, and prohibited Cuba from signing treaties with any other foreign governments to provide them with bases. Not surprisingly, the Platt Amendment was anathema to Cuban nationalists. Over the next two decades, U.S. troops returned to Cuba several times to halt outbreaks of political violence. Treaties and laws promulgated by the U.S. military governors gave U.S. businesses unmatched advantages in the Cuban market, and U.S. investment flowed freely. By the 1930s, U.S. interests owned most of the sugar industry, the heart of the Cuban economy, most of the tobacco industry, the banks, and public utilities. The power and influence of U.S. investors over Cuba's economy came to rival the power and influence of U.S. diplomats over its political affairs. Cuba's politics during the early decades of the century were marked by corruption, both financial and electoral. In 1933, Gerardo Machado's dictatorship was overthrown by a coalition of university students, organized labor, and non-commissioned military officers, which established a revolutionary government promising social reform. Worried that these progressives threatened U.S. interests, Washington conspired with the head of the armed forces, Fulgencio Batista, to engineer a coup just three months after the revolutionaries took office. With U.S. support, Batista ruled Cuba, either directly or indirectly, until 1944, when, after a reasonably free election, he turned power over to the opposition. But in 1952, Batista emerged from retirement and organized a military coup to return himself to power. The United States was not deeply troubled by Batista's seizure of power, suspension of constitutional rule, or flagrant corruption, including deals with the Mafia. He had long been a faithful ally, siding with Washington internationally and safeguarding U.S. interests. Even as opposition to Batista mounted and police repression grew more brutal, Washington continued to support him. Ambassador Arthur Gardner, a political appointee, was such an ostentatious booster that even Batista was embarrassed by the slavishness of his praise. I'm glad Ambassador Gardner approves of my government, Batista quipped, but I wish he wouldn't talk about it so much. Fidel Castro, then a young lawyer, emerged as the leader of the opposition by organizing an audacious but unsuccessful assault on the army's Moncada barracks in Santiago, Cuba, on July 26, 1953 the date for which his revolutionary movement would later be named. Defending himself during his trial for sedition, Castro argued eloquently that insurrection against Batista's unconstitutional regime was justified, famously closing with the words, Condemn me. It does not matter. History will absolve me. Distributed nationwide in pamphlet form, the speech made him a national figure. Inspired by the writings of José Martí, Fidel Castro was a fervent nationalist, he could quote key passages from Marti's work from memory. Having grown up in rural Cuba, where poverty was stark, he had a visceral understanding of the deep inequality of Cuba's social order and an instinctive sympathy for the poor. Castro's original political program was radically reformist, calling for social programs to fight poverty, agrarian reform, and greater Cuban autonomy from U.S. influence. Washington saw Castro as a dangerous radical. As the revolutionary movement gathered force, the Eisenhower administration was torn between its instinct to support the reliable but increasingly unpopular Batista and the dawning realization that Batista could not survive. 
But efforts to distance the United States from the tottering regime were ineffectual. To many Cubans, the long-standing ties between Batista and the United States made it impossible for Washington to escape its role as Batista's patron. As Batista's armed forces collapsed in the final months of 1958, Washington tried to engineer a transition, replacing Batista with military officers willing to continue the fight against Castro's rebel army. The maneuver failed. On January 1, 1959, Batista fled into exile. Fidel Castro's forces occupied the eastern city of Santiago, and a day later, rebel troops, led by Ernesto Che Guevara, entered the city of Havana. Despite Washington's desperate last-minute maneuvers, the revolution had triumphed. Cubans were full of hope and anticipation at the fall of the dictator, and Washington was full of trepidation about the shape of things to come. How should the United States deal with this brash young band of revolutionaries and the potential challenge to U.S. hegemony they represented, not just in our own backyard, but right on the back porch? How would Cuba's new leaders deal with the Colossus of the North, whose dominance they resented, but on whom Cuba remained deeply dependent? Could the two sides reach a modus vivendi? Would they want to? The Soft Glove Approach Ambassador Philip W. Bonsall arrived in Havana on February 19, 1959, determined to break the mold of previous U.S. ambassadors who so often acted like proconsuls. For the next 20 months, Bonsall would work tirelessly to build a constructive relationship with Cuba's new revolutionary government, keeping open the channels for negotiation as long as he could while struggling against obstacles in Washington as well as Havana. The relationship between Cuba and the United States was changing radically as a result of the revolution. The paternalism that had marked relations since 1898 had become an anachronism, but Bonsall was convinced that he could navigate the transition to a new, more equal relationship by engaging Cuba's revolutionary leaders in dialogue. Bonsall came well equipped for the challenge. Unlike his two predecessors, political appointees Arthur Gardner and Earl E.T. Smith, Bonsall was a professional foreign service officer who had lived in Latin America most of his adult life. Patrician in bearing, gentlemanly in demeanor, Bonsall had a reputation as a liberal reformer. He disdained as short-sighted Washington's proclivity to tolerate dictators who claimed ideological kinship with the United States. He favored support for social change, even when it infringed on the interests of U.S. investors. As ambassador to Colombia, Bonsall's meetings with Democratic opponents of General Gustavo Rojas Pinilla so angered the dictator that Bonsall had to be recalled. From there he was sent to Bolivia, where his policy of constructive engagement helped steer a revolutionary government toward moderation. Good relations, Bonsall believed, would be grounded in the economic mutuality of interest between Cuba and the United States. Rhetoric and youthful exuberance aside, Castro and his Barbudos, bearded guerrillas, would eventually realize that economic ties between the two countries were so intricate that neither would be well served by rupturing them. This, in turn, would exercise a stabilizing and moderating influence on the new government. Official Washington distrusted Fidel and his rebel army commanders, however. I was impressed by the reserve with which Castro was viewed, Bonsall wrote of his State Department colleagues. They accepted the Cuban reality as it then appeared and were determined to develop productive relations with the new government, but they had no enthusiasm for Castro. U.S. officials suspected that Castro was dangerously radical, even if he was not a communist. 
His nationalism and commitment to social change were bound to conflict with U.S. interests on the island, where U.S. investors had more than a billion dollars in assets. In April 1959, the Latin American Bureau of the State Department held a Caribbean Chiefs of Mission conference in San Salvador to brief U.S. ambassadors on Cuba policy. Bonsell held center stage, arguing that Castro's policies were reformist, nationalistic, and somewhat socialistic and neutralist, but nevertheless that the trajectory of the regime was malleable. Moreover, Bonsell pointed out to skeptical colleagues, the revolution was a fait accompli. Castro was firmly in power, the quintessential charismatic leader, so popular that everyone called him Fidel, even his enemies. Polls showed backing for the new government exceeding 90%. Washington had little choice but to deal with Castro, so Bonsell argued for a policy of patience and forbearance. In private, Bonsell told his colleagues that Cuba needed a revolution, and Castro was not as bad as he seemed. If Washington followed a soft-glove approach, Bonsell was confident he could handle Castro. The rebels of Castro's 26th of July movement distrusted the United States because of its dominance of the Cuban economy, its history of interfering in Cuban politics, its friendship with Batista, and its eleventh-hour maneuvers to keep Castro from coming to power. Before Bonsell even landed in Havana, relations were marred by vocal criticism in the U.S. press and Congress over summary trials and executions of several hundred police and military officials from the old regime, what Senator Wayne Morris, Democrat of Oregon, called the bloodbath in Cuba. Cubans were flabbergasted at this sudden eruption of concern for human rights. There had been no comparable outcry during Batista's reign of terror, which took the lives of thousands. The Americans seemed to be defending their old friends, recalled Carlos Franqui, editor of the daily newspaper Revolución. All across the island, clandestine cemeteries were being exhumed, revealing the gruesome handiwork of Batista's police. Hardly a Cuban does not have a relative who was killed during the Batista terror, wrote New York Times reporter Ruby Hart Phillips. Many of those executed were well known to the populace as thugs and assassins of the worst type, the U.S. consulate in Santiago reported to Washington. There is little doubt but that a number would have faced the possibility of capital punishment in any state having war crimes trials. Fidel Castro saw U.S. criticism of the trials as a cynical campaign of lies to defame the revolution and a harbinger of U.S. hostility. He reacted defiantly. On January 21st, hundreds of thousands of Cubans rallied at the presidential palace to support the trials and to listen as Castro blasted the United States for its aid to Batista, its refusal to extradite his cronies and return the millions they stole from the Cuban treasury, and the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. In this first skirmish between the United States and Cuba's revolutionary government, the U.S. charges infuriated Castro, and his harsh anti-American rhetoric in response angered U.S. officials. Nevertheless, Bonsell arrived at his new post confident that an enlightened U.S. attitude, combined with ties of economic interdependence, would be a sufficient foundation upon which to build friendly relations. He told every Cuban minister he met that Washington hoped to have good relations with the new government, sympathized with many of its promised social reforms, and was eager to help. Bonsell had his first audience with Fidel on March 5, 1959, on the veranda of Castro's villa in the suburb of Cojimar, about 15 miles outside Havana. Speaking with intensity, 
Fidel leaned forward on the edge of his patio chair, as if to physically drive home his points. Gesturing exuberantly, cigar in hand, he described his plans for agrarian reform, rent reductions, low-cost housing, and industrialization, what he called the vital elements of the revolution. He was in an effusive mood, the ambassador reported to Washington. I endeavored to convey to Castro the goodwill and hopefulness with which my government envisioned the relations between our two countries. He reminded Castro that U.S. investors had made important contributions to Cuba's economic development and could make further contributions under the right conditions. He gently pointed out that people in the United States were as proud of their country as Cubans were of theirs, and equally sensitive to misinterpretations of their actions an oblique reference to Castro's frequent anti-American jibes. But, Bonsall said, he hoped they could maintain a frank, cordial relationship even on matters on which there may be disagreement. After their private meeting, they smiled for the photographers and parted warmly. At a press conference the next day, Castro described the meeting as a cordial and friendly conversation, his verdict, a good ambassador. Yet despite this promising first meeting, Bonsall would find it exasperatingly difficult to arrange future meetings with Cuba's maximum leader. To Castro, Bonsall's expressions of concern, no matter how diplomatically delivered, cast the ambassador with the demeanor of a proconsul. Later, Castro would recall that he avoided Bonsall intentionally. This gentleman's statements were simply intolerable. Castro's message was clear. The U.S. ambassador was no longer, as former Ambassador Smith liked to say, the second most important man in Cuba, sometimes even more important than the president. Fidel's Goodwill Tour The day after meeting Bonsall, Castro announced he had accepted an invitation by the American Society of Newspaper Editors, ASNE, to visit the United States in April 1959. The trip was unofficial, which suited Castro just fine. He was loath to be seen as a typical Latin American leader going to Washington hat in hand for help. Nevertheless, his visit offered an occasion for senior U.S. officials to meet Castro and for mid-level officials from both governments to discuss relations. Castro brought a large retinue, including most of his top economic advisors. In retrospect, this trip may have been the best opportunity the two governments had to avoid a break in relations. The Eisenhower administration, though deeply suspicious of the guerrilla leader, had not yet decided that U.S. national interest demanded his removal. Castro, though deeply suspicious of Washington, had not yet decided that his revolution required a complete break with the United States. At that time, we believed the revolutionary project could be carried out with a great deal of comprehension on the part of the people of the United States, Castro later told Lee Lockwood. I went precisely in an effort to keep public opinion in the United States better informed and better disposed toward the revolution. Fidel went to the United States full of hope, recalled his press secretary, Teresa Casuso. He was in a good mood. Intent on using the eleven-day trip to the best advantage, the Cubans hired a public relations firm, Bernard Rellin and Associates, Inc., Although they ignored the firm's advice to shave their beards and exchange their olive-green uniforms for business suits, they nevertheless made a good impression. Everywhere Fidel went, he was met by cheering crowds. Fifteen hundred were on hand when he arrived at Washington's National Airport, two thousand greeted him at New York's Penn Station, ten thousand turned out to hear him speak at Harvard. 
and 35,000 attended his outdoor address in Central Park. Fidel was delighted. This is just the way it is in Cuba, he marveled, wading into the crowds to shake hands. At the Bronx Zoo, in a display of youthful exuberance, Castro jumped over the guardrail and stuck his hand into the tiger cage, playfully taunting the big cats. It was quintessential Fidel, boldly courting danger, fearless to the point of recklessness, a style not unlike his approach to dealing with the United States. In Washington, Castro met for an hour and a half with members of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and the House Foreign Affairs Committee. At every opportunity, he spoke to the press, in imperfect English, hoping to dispel the negative image left by the war crimes trials. He went on NBC's Meet the Press, fielding reporters' questions for half an hour. He spoke at Columbia, Princeton, and Harvard. At Princeton University, Castro happened to meet former Secretary of State Dean Acheson at a reception hosted by New Jersey Governor Robert Maynard. To Acheson, Castro came across as smart and level-headed. This fellow Castro really knows what he is doing, Acheson told a colleague shortly after the meeting. He is going to cause us some problems down the road. In Cambridge, Castro had dinner at the faculty club with Dean of Arts and Sciences McGeorge Bundy, who then introduced him to an adulatory crowd. Two years hence, as President John F. Kennedy's national security adviser, Bundy would plot Castro's ouster. Everywhere he went, Fidel patiently answered questions about the alleged communist infiltration of his government, the executions of Batista's henchmen, and his attitude toward the United States. Despite the most impertinent questions, Fidel never lost his temper, always kept his good humor. Carlos Franchi marveled. Castro was, as the State Department put it, a man on his best behavior. And he was very effective. His exuberance, relaxed informality, and somewhat broken English were a thoroughly winning combination. The reception Premier Castro received here was so friendly that he will surely return feeling better about the United States than when he arrived, the New York Times editorialized. By the same token, it seems obvious that Americans feel better about Fidel Castro than they did before. If the unofficial part of Fidel's visit was a roaring success, the official part was not. President Eisenhower was more than irritated when he first got word of the trip. I inquired whether we could not refuse him a visa, he recalled. Advised that such a snub would only strengthen Castro's hand by rallying nationalist opinion behind him, Eisenhower relented, but I nevertheless refused to see him. Instead, Ike went golfing in Augusta, Georgia a slight not lost on the Cuban leader. Months later, after U.S.-Cuban relations had deteriorated, Castro would go golfing with Che Guevara and invite the international press. The golf game was a photo opportunity, Fidel recalled. The real purpose was to make fun of Eisenhower. The State Department had higher hopes for Castro's trip. His entourage included many of his government's most prominent pro-American moderates, the presence of National Bank President Felipe Pazos, Minister of the Treasury Rufo López Fresquet, and Minister of Economy Regino Botti suggested that Castro wanted to open serious discussions about economic cooperation, a conclusion reinforced by the fact that Pazos submitted in advance a memorandum outlining an agenda for talks regarding financial assistance and cooperation. What followed, however, was a minuet of reticence. Before arriving in Washington, Castro stunned members of his economic team by telling them not to ask for aid. Wasn't that the whole reason for the trip? asked Lopez Fresque. Look, Rufo, Fidel replied, 
I don't want this trip to be like that of other new Latin American leaders who always come to the U.S. to ask for money. I want this to be a goodwill trip. Besides, the Americans will be surprised, and when we go back to Cuba, they will offer us aid without our asking for it. Sure enough, at his first press conference upon arrival, reporters asked Castro if he had come to request U.S. aid. No, he replied. We are proud to be independent and have no intention of asking anyone for anything. He repeated that refrain in his speech to the newspaper editors, declaring, I did not come here for money. You should not think of our country as a beggar. In private, he repeatedly ordered his economic advisers not to ask for anything. U.S. officials were puzzled. On the basis of exchanges with the Cubans prior to the trip, they expected the issue of aid to be high on the agenda. They hinted at Washington's willingness to provide assistance, trying to get the Cubans to begin the conversation. Secretary of the Treasury Robert Anderson told his counterpart, López Fresquet, that the United States wanted to help. Assistant Secretary of State for Inter-American Affairs R. Richard Rubottom explicitly asked the Cuban economists how the United States could cooperate in addressing Cuba's most pressing economic needs. We were prepared to offer them a loan of $25 million then and there, said a State Department official who was in the meeting. The attitude of the U.S. was that of a most willing lender, Felipe Pazos recalled. But the Cubans obeyed their commander-in-chief and responded non-committally to all inquiries. In the end, the Cubans wouldn't ask, and the Americans didn't offer. Fidel was hoping for offers which he never received, Teresa Casuso wrote, and not receiving them vexed him greatly. If the lack of discussion about economic aid was a missed opportunity, Fidel's two-and-a-half-hour meeting with Vice President Richard M. Nixon was an opportunity gone horribly wrong. The meeting between Fidel and Nixon was an out-and-out -out disaster, according to Revolution editor Carlos Franchi, who accompanied Fidel on the trip. Their mutual dislike would be long-lived. The two met in Washington for two and a half hours on April 19th at Nixon's office in the Capitol because he didn't want to host Castro at the White House or entertain him at the vice president's residence. Nixon talked to Castro just like a father the vice president told his aides immediately afterward, although he felt that Castro had not listened to him. He presumed to give Castro advice about how to govern, warning him of the growing influence of communists in his government. He was incredibly naive with regard to the communist threat, Nixon wrote in a memo summarizing the meeting. Castro's skepticism about the efficacy of elections, his distrust of private capital, and his failure to share Nixon's obsession with the international communist menace led the vice president to conclude that Castro was inimical to U.S. interests. But Castro was an adversary to be reckoned with. The one fact we can be sure of is that he has those indefinable qualities which make him a leader of men, Nixon concluded. Whatever we may think of him, he is going to be a great factor in the development of Cuba, and very possibly in Latin American affairs generally, because he has the power to lead, to which I have referred, we have no choice but at least to orient him in the right direction. This tutorial approach proved short-lived. Within weeks, Nixon became an advocate for overthrowing Castro. Castro emerged from the meeting unimpressed and insulted. This man has spent the whole time scolding me, Fidel complained. Personally, he thought Nixon was superficial, uninterested when Fidel tried to explain Cuba's wrenching economic and social problems. 
When Nixon started to talk, nothing could stop him, Castro recalled. Nearly half a century after their encounter, Nixon's patronizing lecture still rankled. Not even an elementary school student would hope to receive so many lessons. Meeting the CIA Castro would have an even stranger encounter on his trip, a secret meeting with the CIA. While he and his entourage were in Washington, a U.S. official approached López Fresquet to arrange a meeting between Castro and the highest authority of American intelligence on the communists in Latin America. At first, Castro was reluctant, but he finally agreed to a private meeting in New York. Although the CIA had conspired to keep Fidel from coming to power during the final weeks of the Batista dictatorship, relations between the CIA and the 26th of July movement had not been entirely bad. CIA officers in the U.S. Embassy knew better than most the depths of Batista's brutality and had little use for him. More than once, they made formal inquiries to Batista's police about the status of captured rebels, knowing that the mere fact of the inquiry would likely prevent the prisoner's disappearance. Ambassador Earl E.T. Smith thought the CIA station in the embassy was pro-Castro. Even in Washington, CIA officials following events in Cuba had a certain admiration for the young revolutionary's courage and sense of mission. In those days, we were all fidelistas recalled Robert Reynolds, then head of the Caribbean desk in the CIA's covert operations branch, the Directorate of Plans. In August 1958, the chief of the CIA's paramilitary division political and psychological staff, Alfred Cox, recommended abandoning Batista and secretly supplying Castro with arms and money. A practical way to protect U.S. interests in this matter, Cox suggested, would be to make secret contact with Castro assure him of the U.S. sympathy with some of his objectives, and offer him support. That did not happen, but as the Batista regime crumbled, the CIA station chief in Havana endorsed a quiet proposal from the city's archbishop that the United States discreetly open a dialogue with Castro. An operation of this nature could pay big future dividends. The chief of station cabled headquarters on December 18, 1958, less than two weeks before the triumph of the revolution. Regardless how we may feel about Castro and his movement, both will be important political forces for a long time to come. At the same time, Castro was trying to open a dialogue with Washington. In mid-December, he told journalist Andrew St. George that he would welcome having a U.S. representative visit him in the Sierra Maestra to discuss a number of important political issues. All these tentative efforts to open a dialogue were overtaken by the sudden collapse of the Batista regime on January 1, 1959. Castro's April visit to the United States provided the CIA with its first real opportunity to communicate with Cuba's new leader. Fidel agreed to meet the CIA emissary at the New York Statler Hilton Hotel, where the Cuban delegation was staying. The CIA sent Jerry Droller, a.k.a. Frank Bender, the pseudonym he used as chief of political action for the Bay of Pigs invasion. Bender, a German immigrant and veteran of the OSS, was new to the Latin American division and did not speak Spanish. His attitude was cavalier, breezily aggressive, according to fellow spy Howard Hunt. He spent three hours with Fidel, smoking cigars and instructing the Comandante on the dangers of international communism. The Cuban Communist Party, Bender warned, was an agent of this international menace and a threat to Castro's leadership. 
Fidel countered that Cuba's communists were a minority and he could handle them. The United States, he said, was overly concerned with communism. The best bulwark against its spread would be for the United States to stop neglecting Latin America's social and economic problems. Nevertheless, Bender felt that Fidel had received the briefing on international communism seriously and in good faith. He listened intently and reacted favorably, and was eager to accept suggestions that information on international communism be channeled to him in the future. Castro agreed to establish a secret back channel to the CIA and designated López Fresquet as the Cuban contact. Bender emerged from the meeting exultant. Castro is not only not a communist, he assured López Fresquet, but he is a strong anti-communist fighter. A month later, the U.S. Embassy activated the secret channel by sending a message to Castro, but he never responded, and no further messages followed. The Eisenhower administration was no more enamored of Fidel after his visit than before. Acknowledging that the trip was a public relations triumph, the State Department's assessment nevertheless concluded, There is little probability that Castro has altered the essentially radical course of his revolution. While we certainly know him better than before, Castro remains an enigma, and we should await his decisions on specific matters before assuming a more optimistic view regarding the possibility of developing a constructive relationship with him and his government. On balance, Castro's trip to the United States was a missed opportunity. Fidel saw it as a chance to appeal directly to U.S. public opinion, countering the lies in the press about the trials of Batista's henchmen. The moderates in his entourage saw it as an opportunity to improve ties with the United States, countering the radical influence of Raul Castro and Che Guevara. Bonsal and his embassy staff hoped the trip would open the discussion of U.S. aid, thereby reinforcing the economic ties binding Cuba to the United States. But in the end, Castro's fear of looking like a supplicant outweighed his need for assistance, and Washington's disdain for the revolution's unorthodox politics outweighed Bonsall's strategy of engagement. As writer Hugh Thomas put it, each side, proud and suspicious, held back. The Cubans left empty-handed, but they got an earful about communism. Castro went away convinced that Washington was obsessed with it. Senators interrogated him about it. Nixon lectured him on it. The CIA tried to recruit him to fight it. The message was clear. Cuba was not free to choose its own path if that path was regarded as communist by the United States. What the Eisenhower administration failed to grasp, however, was that Cuba's communists were not some alien force, but an essential part of Castro's revolutionary coalition, allies he was not about to betray to curry favor with the United States. Prompt and Adequate Compensation on May 17th, just days after Castro's return to Havana, the revolutionary government promulgated the first agrarian reform law. It nationalized most estates in excess of 1,000 acres, which affected only about 10% of farms, but 40% of the arable land. Some of the expropriated estates were broken up into small family farms, but others, especially the sugar plantations, were run as cooperatives or state enterprises. Compensation would be based on assessed value for tax purposes and paid with 20-year bonds, yielding 4.5% interest. Agrarian reform was bound to impact U.S. interests since many of Cuba's largest plantations were foreign-owned. Initially, the U.S. government seemed to take the reform in stride. 
Bonsall was instructed to tell Castro that the United States recognized Cuba's sovereign right to expropriate land, was not opposed to sound land reform, and would even be willing to provide aid to implement a well-designed program. The proposed law, however, had greatly concerned and disturbed U.S. investors, and Washington expected prompt, adequate, and effective compensation. Moreover, if the reform so damaged sugar production that Cuba could not meet its contractual obligations, Washington would have to act to guarantee supply, a thinly-veiled threat that Cuba's portion of the sugar import quota could be reduced. By law, Cuba was allowed to sell a set amount of sugar to the United States at a subsidized price. Bonsell never got to deliver the message directly because Fidel refused to see him. Giving up in frustration, Bonsall finally recommended that the U.S. reaction be delivered in a formal diplomatic note. The State Department delivered the note on June 11, 1959, and simultaneously released it publicly, a signal that Washington was losing patience. The note prompted a quick response. Castro called Bonsall to a meeting the next day to reassure the ambassador that he was not opposed in principle to foreign investment and that he recognized Cuba's obligation to pay compensation. He was relaxed and friendly, Bonsall reported to Washington, and showed no signs of being upset at our note. However, Castro pointed out, Cuba could not afford to pay in cash, as the U.S. note implicitly suggested it should by citing a provision of the Constitution of 1940 specifying cash compensation for nationalizations. Bonsall left the meeting hopeful that the interests of U.S. investors could be protected. Decision-makers in Washington were less sanguine. The controversy over the agrarian reform marked a critical turning point in U.S.-Cuban relations, not so much because the reform itself was especially radical. It was not, compared to reforms President John F. Kennedy would soon support through the Alliance for Progress, or because the issue of compensation was so nettlesome. Both sides purported to be willing to negotiate a compromise. Rather, Washington saw the law as a bellwether of the revolution's radical direction. It was written not by the Ministry of Agriculture or the Cabinet, but by Fidel's inner circle, a group of confidants, most of them commandantes, who had fought with him in the Sierra. This inner circle, which included Raul Castro and Che Guevara, was markedly more radical than the Cabinet, to which the law was presented as a fait accompli. Ministers who protested, five of them, moderates all, including Foreign Minister Roberto Agramonte, were fired the same evening the U.S. note was delivered. This confirmed the suspicions of Washington conservatives that Castro was committed to radical social reform and that the moderates in his government, in whom Washington had invested its hopes for a pro-American Cuba, had been eclipsed. Within the Eisenhower administration, attitudes were hardening. Bonsall's policy of patient, watchful waiting had not shown any tangible results. Castro's anti-American rhetoric had not subsided, his radical domestic policies and partnership with Cuba's communists showed no signs of abating, and his support for revolutionary expeditions abroad threatened to destabilize the Caribbean. The agrarian reform was the proverbial straw that broke the back of patience and forbearance because it added to this list of grievances a new threat to U.S. investors. In late June and early July, key officials in the Eisenhower administration reached the conclusion that the continued existence of Fidel Castro's government conflicted with U.S. interests. Policy shifted from a cautious willingness to seek a constructive relationship to a clear determination to bring about Castro's demise. 
The initiative came from Assistant Secretary Rubottom, who had originally backed Bonsall despite his own skepticism. Rubottom gave up on constructive engagement after the agrarian reform and removal of the moderates from the cabinet. These were all indications that Castro was not a man with whom the United States could work, Rubottom explained. On July 8th, Rubottom and Deputy Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs Robert D. Murphy took the issue of rolling back the Cuban Revolution to a luncheon meeting of Eisenhower's Operations Coordinating Board, OCB, an interagency group comprising senior officials who met weekly to discuss major foreign policy issues. It was time, Rubottom argued, for policy to shift from the testing phase, in which Castro had failed practically every test we had given him, to the pressure phase. This was followed by another meeting on July 15th with Murphy and CIA Director Alan Dulles. I told them that I felt the time had come when the United States should give some consideration to supporting the anti-Castro people, that this man was a clear-cut threat to the United States, Rubottom recalled. Together, they convinced Secretary of State Herter, and planning for a new policy commenced. Rubottom described the policy change to the National Security Council a few months later. The period from January to March 1959 might be characterized as the honeymoon period of the Castro government. In April, a downward trend in U.S.-Cuban relations had been evident. In June, we had reached the decision that it was not possible to achieve our objectives with Castro in power. In July and August, we had been busy drawing up a program to replace Castro. The Central Intelligence Agency was tasked to develop plans to support Castro's domestic opponents, weaken his regime, and culminate in regime change before the end of Eisenhower's presidency. The final decision to implement the plan, however, was delayed by a fresh flurry of diplomacy from Cuba's new foreign minister, Raul Roa. Quiet Diplomacy Raúl Roa had been a revolutionary in his youth during the 1930s struggle against dictator Gerardo Machado, so he felt a kinship with Fidel Castro and his comandantes. A respected intellectual, Roa had been dean of social sciences at the University of Havana and, since January 1959, represented Cuba in the Organization of American States, OAS. He was unquestionably more radical than his predecessor, Roberto Agramonte, but he seemed sincere in his desire to reverse the deterioration of U.S.-Cuban relations. Before Roa headed back to Cuba from his United Nations post, Rubottom hosted a lunch for him at the State Department. Rubottom immediately raised the issue of expropriations, saying that he felt grave and real fears that drastic measures like the agrarian reform threatened the very basis, the roots, of this Cuban-American special economic and political relationship. Roa replied that Cuba has no desire or intent to change the bases of the U.S.-Cuban relationship. But it was a mistake, he added, for Washington to have made its diplomatic note about the agrarian reform public. It would be better if our differences could be discussed in private through normal diplomatic channels. Rubottom agreed. In a private, off-the-record conversation with Rubottom's deputy assistant secretary, William Wheeland, Roa hinted that public rebukes simply antagonized Castro. He gave me the impression that he was trying to say that if we avoided rubbing Castro in public the wrong way, he felt that sufficient internal pressures would be built up to cause Castro either to yield with the adoption of a more moderate program 
or to face the collapse of his government, Wieland reported. Of course, he did not say this in as many words. In Havana, Roa suggested to Bonsall that the two governments try to resolve their differences through quiet dialogue. Good relations with the United States were not incompatible with the goals of the revolution, he insisted, and he proposed that the two of them meet regularly to work on improving bilateral ties. Roa also assured Bonsall that the Cubans were prepared to work out the issue of compensation. U.S. companies whose premises had been intervened, seized, suddenly found the government more forthcoming in private discussions about compensation. A confidential source in Havana suggested a motive behind the new Cuban peace offensive. Castro, the source told the embassy, has a strong belief the U.S. is probably planning secretly to bring about his overthrow. He was prepared to come to terms with Washington if this could be done without sacrificing Cuba's sovereignty. The new dialogue had barely gotten underway, however, when it was complicated by the defection of Pedro Díaz-Lanz, chief of the Cuban Air Force. Díaz-Lanz, who ran guns for the rebel army during the insurrection, fled to Miami in June 1959 after Fidel rebuked him for complaining publicly about communist indoctrination in the Air Force. The real trauma, however, came two weeks later, when Díaz-Lanz testified before the Senate Internal Security Subcommittee, claiming that Castro and virtually every senior official in his government were communists. In a speech on July 11th, Castro denounced Díaz-Lanz as Cuba's Benedict Arnold and attacked the United States more severely than at any time since his April trip. A week later, just as the Díaz-Lanz storm was clearing, a new one broke, the forced resignation of President Manuel Urrutia. Urrutia, a distinguished jurist, had been designated president by the 26th of July movement before the triumph of the revolution, but his role in the new government was largely ceremonial, especially after Castro became prime minister in February. In late June and early July, Urrutia also spoke out publicly against communists in the government. On July 17th, Castro abruptly resigned as prime minister, telling the nation that he could no longer work with Urrutia, whose anti-communism had aligned him with enemies of the revolution foreign and domestic. Crowds poured into the streets demanding Urrutia's resignation, and the president complied. Castro resumed office, having shown that the legitimacy of the regime rested not with any institution or office, but with him personally. Roa's efforts to improve bilateral relations continued nonetheless. On July 30th, he met with Bonsall and reiterated Cuba's desire to improve relations despite Castro's harsh anti-American rhetoric surrounding the Díaz-Lanz and Urrutia incidents. He also promised to arrange a meeting for Bonsall with Fidel, although it took more than a month. Finally, in September, Roa hosted a private dinner at his home for Castro and Bonsall. The conversation stretched into the wee hours of the morning. Bonsall recounted the litany of U.S. concerns, the unceasing barrage of anti-American rhetoric, the growing communist influence in the government, and the nationalizations of U.S. property. Castro was conciliatory. He regretted some of his own harsh public jabs at the United States, he said, and recognized the positive contributions U.S. investors had made to Cuba's development. As to the Cold War, he professed to have no interest in it. Cuba was too busy instituting sweeping domestic changes. The best international strategy for the United States, Castro argued, would be a massive economic assistance program for Latin America, including Cuba. 
Castro's call for a Latin American Marshall Plan echoed a proposal he had made to the OAS in Buenos Aires in May. When Roa repeated the proposal publicly at the United Nations three weeks later, Bonsell urged Washington to be ready to respond positively to a Cuban request for bilateral aid, if and when the climate between the two countries improves. The Cubans wanted aid, Bonsell was certain, but pride prevented them from asking directly. He wanted to send a signal that a request would be met with a favorable response. It was too late. In Washington for consultations the following week, Bonsell could sense that support for his policy of patience had evaporated. We have all been staunch advocates of extending the hand of friendship to Cuba and adopting a patient, tolerant attitude, William Wheeland, Rubottom's deputy, told the ambassador, but we cannot continue this policy much longer without some positive achievement to show in its justification. Nevertheless, Wheeland supported Bonsell's argument in favor of bilateral aid. Rubottom, however, did not. The political climate in Washington would not allow it. We would be tossed out for proposing such a thing, Rubottom warned. We have to walk a tightrope, he continued. While trying to keep up a semblance of good relations with the present regime, we must, at the same time, try to keep alive any spark of opposition and to let the opposition know we are aware of its existence and not committed to Castro. As he departed for Havana, Bonsall registered his disappointment by asking that he be instructed in writing on how he should respond to a Cuban request for aid, and that he be advised if the State Department came to the conclusion that the Castro government is a hopeless proposition. When Bonsall next met with Roa in early October, he informed him that it was up to Cuba to take the initiative if it wanted improved relations. Months of anti-American rhetoric had taken their toll, Bonsall warned, and the deterioration of relations was the unfortunate harvest which Cuba is now gathering from attitudes, statements, and actions of her rulers since January 1st. Patience runs out. Bonsall's efforts to make progress through quiet dialogue with Roa came to a loud public end in October. The tumult began with a gaffe. On October 16th, a State Department official mistakenly revealed that the United States had urged Great Britain not to deliver jet aircraft originally purchased by Batista. To Castro, this was proof of Washington's perfidy in claiming to want better relations. The news, Roa told Bonsall, seriously damaged their dialogue. Publicly, Washington insisted that its opposition to the aircraft sale was simply part of its general policy to limit arms imports to Latin America. Privately, Alan Dulles told the British ambassador that he hoped to force Castro to buy arms from the Soviet bloc, because, in the case of Guatemala, it had been a shipment of Soviet arms that had created the occasion for what had been done, the CIA's overthrow of the Guatemalan government, and the same might be true in the case of Cuba. Four days after the aircraft story broke, Comandante Ubermatos, the 26th of July movement commander in Camahue province, resigned over what he saw as growing communist influence in the government. Earlier that fall, he had begun speaking with other rebel army veterans about how to put a stop to it. Raul Castro's appointment in October as Minister of the Revolutionary Armed Forces brought the issue to a head and prompted Matos, along with more than a dozen other officers in Camahue, to resign. 
Matos was immediately arrested for plotting against the government, tried for sedition, and sentenced to twenty years in prison. On the very day Matos was arrested, Pedro Diaz Lanz re-entered the picture, bombing Havana with anti-Castro leaflets. Anti-aircraft fire went astray, causing several dozen casualties and creating the impression that Lanz's plane dropped bombs. The day after Lanz's flight, Revolución's banner headline read, The Planes Came from the United States. To Castro, these disparate events belied a pattern. Exiles were attacking Cuba with impunity from airfields in Florida. Washington was blocking Cuba's ability to acquire the weapons it needed to defend itself, and Diaz-Lanz's brazen attack on Havana coincided with Matos's abortive mutiny. In a speech on October 26th to more than 300,000 people rallying in defense of the revolution, Castro compared Diaz-Lanz's flight to the attack on Pearl Harbor and accused the United States of foreign aggression for giving the war criminals a safe haven from which to attack. Castro's rhetoric was as strongly anti-American as anything he has ever done. Bonsell advised the State Department, so harsh that even the Stoic ambassador recommended a public response. Washington delivered its reply the following day, in a public note, decrying the deliberate and concerted efforts in Cuba to replace the traditional friendship between the Cuban and American people with distrust and hostility. Castro's charges were utterly unfounded. The note went on to assure Cubans that the United States was adhering to a policy of non-intervention, had nothing to do with the Diaz-Lanz incident, and was working diligently to halt illegal flights against Cuba. None of these claims was strictly true. The harsh rhetorical flurries of October led to Bonsall's recall and gave administration hardliners the impetus they needed to push a formal change in U.S. policy through the bureaucracy. The informal consensus to oust Castro reached over the summer led to a September draft policy paper, classified secret, spelling out Washington's new objectives. It argued that the Cuban government's behavior was incompatible with U.S. policy objectives in Latin America and that Bonsall's policy of overt sympathy and forbearance toward Castro should be replaced by a policy of overt pressure. A revised version of the new policy statement, Current Basic U.S. Policy, was finalized in the State Department on October 23rd and approved by President Eisenhower on November 5th. The immediate objective of the United States with respect to Cuba, the new policy statement declared, is the development of a situation in which, not later than the end of 1960, the government then in control of Cuba should, in its domestic and foreign policies, meet the basic United States policy objectives for Latin American countries. As Rubottom explained in his cover memo, this meant overthrowing Castro. The policies and programs of the Castro government are inconsistent with the minimal requirements of good Cuban-U.S. relations, he wrote, and will not be satisfactorily altered except as a result of Cuban opposition to Castro's present course and or a change in the Cuban regime. Given Castro's widespread popularity in Cuba and Latin America, U.S. officials regarded this new policy of hostility as extremely sensitive. Washington would maintain a public facade of proper relations while working secretly to destabilize Cuba's government. As Rubottom explained, the approved program authorized us to support elements in Cuba opposed to the Castro government while making Castro's downfall seem to be the result of his own mistakes. 
A covert policy required covert implementation, so the CIA took the lead. The agency had been developing plans for Cuba since the summer, providing assistance to prominent defectors, including Pedro Diaz-Lanz, and to selected domestic opponents of Castro. In December, the CIA developed the first plan for paramilitary action in Cuba, the seed from which the Bay of Pigs operation would eventually grow, and J.C. King, chief of the Western Hemisphere Division for Covert Operations, first recommended that thorough consideration be given to the elimination of Fidel Castro in order to greatly accelerate the fall of the present government. This is the end of the CD. The audiobook continues on the next CD. The Argentine Ambassador Intercedes Rubottom delayed informing Bonsall that the administration had given up on his strategy of patience and forbearance and was now bent on overthrowing Castro. With considerable reluctance, we have found ourselves forced closer and closer to the realization and frank recognition of the fact that it may be unduly optimistic and even unrealistic to assume that we shall ever be able to do business with the Castro government. He wrote in a personal letter almost a month after the key decisions had already been taken. In reply, Bonsall acknowledged his own frustration. The efforts of our government to create an atmosphere of goodwill and good faith have certainly not found an echo, he admitted. The situation is, however, fraught with all sorts of dangers. On the ground in Cuba, Bonsall was keenly aware that Castro's popular support was broad and deep, and that there was no significant organized opposition to the revolutionary government. He saw little prospect of Washington's new strategy being effective, so he refused to give up hope that some sort of accommodation might be found. In this hope, he was encouraged by continuing assurances from Foreign Minister Roa and others that the Cubans did indeed want to continue a dialogue on outstanding bilateral issues. The last serious effort to negotiate a modus vivendi began, ironically, as the unintended consequence of a diplomatic shouting match. Campaigning in Miami on January 16, 1960, Vice President Nixon warned that Cuba's hostility toward U.S. investors risked damaging the Cuban economy, deterring future investment, and perhaps provoking Congress to cut Cuba's sugar quota. Castro responded angrily to the implied threat and denounced the U.S. Embassy for plotting with traitors to subvert the revolution. He continued his tirade on a television program the following day, accusing the Spanish ambassador, Juan Pablo de Lohendillo, of improprieties as well. Insulted, Lohendillo came directly to the studio, interrupted the program on the air, and demanded the right to defend himself. This led to shouting, a brief scuffle, and Castro's declaring the ambassador persona non grata on the spot. Castro's personal attack on Bonsall led the Department of State to recall him again, over his objections. But the recall proved fortuitous. Back in Washington, Bonsall convinced Secretary Herter and President Eisenhower to offer Castro one last olive branch. It was not an easy sell. Meeting with Bonsall on January 25th, the President remarked that Castro was acting like a madman and that perhaps the U.S. Navy should be deployed to quarantine the island. If they, the Cuban people, are hungry, they will throw Castro out, the President surmised. We should not punish the whole Cuban people for the acts of one abnormal man, Bonsall replied, and the president relented. Instead, he approved a new statement of U.S. policy that Bonsall had drafted, opening the door to renewed dialogue. On January 26th, Eisenhower released the statement to the press. 
he expressed concern about the poor state of relations with Cuba, but acknowledged Cuba's right to undertake social, economic, and political reforms. Most importantly, the President called for negotiations to settle bilateral differences and concluded that there were reasonable bases for a workable and satisfactory relationship between our two sovereign countries. Coincident with Eisenhower's statement, Bonsell instructed Chargé d'Affaires Daniel Ambradic in Havana to approach the Brazilian and Argentine ambassadors to ask for their good offices in initiating a U.S.-Cuban dialogue. The ambassadors, both known for having good personal relationships with senior Cuban officials, were asked to advise their Cuban contacts that Eisenhower's statement represented a real desire by the United States to negotiate, and that the Cubans should react soberly and calmly to what may be the final opportunity to avoid serious consequences. The Brazilian ambassador applauded the U.S. initiative, but lamented that he had little contact with Cuban leaders. They don't want any advice, he told Braddock. The Argentine ambassador, Julio A. Amoedo, responded more energetically. He spent the whole day on January 26th trying to track down Fidel, finally catching up with him that evening at the house of his aide, Celia Sanchez. Amoedo outlined the U.S. proposal. If the Cubans would stop vilifying the United States in public, Bonsall would return to Havana and meet with Castro to establish a formal mechanism for negotiations. Looking ahead, Amoedo said, the United States was disposed to provide Cuba with assistance for its economic and social reforms. The promise of aid was something the ambassador threw in on his own initiative, hoping to make the offer more attractive. According to Amoedo, Fidel's reaction was entirely negative. As it happened, Amoedo arrived just as Castro was reviewing his reply to Eisenhower, slated to run as an editorial in Revolución the next morning. It categorically and brutally rejected the U.S. statement, Amoedo recalled. Convinced the die was cast, Amoedo rose to leave, but Castro bid him stay. After talking about the U.S. proposal for more than an hour, Castro called the offices of Revolución and had the editorial pulled and ordered that no further attacks on Washington be published. He agreed the differences with the U.S. should be discussed, Amoedo recalled, and told me that Dorticos would make a statement to that effect. Speaking the next day, President Osvaldo Dorticos did not back away from Cuba's complaints against Washington, but his statement was conciliatory enough that the U.S. Embassy concluded it contained some ground for optimism in that it affirmed the Cuban government's desire for friendly relations with the United States and its willingness to negotiate differences. Braddock met with Roa on February 4th to reiterate that Washington wanted to open a dialogue, but expected a retraction of Castro's public charges that Bonsall had encouraged counter-revolution. While negotiations were underway, Braddock added, both sides should pledge to maintain an atmosphere free of public accusations and recriminations. Roa replied that Cuba also wanted a resumption of normal relations. Two weeks later, the Cubans agreed to Washington's conditions. They formally notified Washington that they had no charges to make against Ambassador Bonsall, and they agreed to maintain a constructive atmosphere while talks were underway. Just as it seemed that Bonsall's strategy was about to pay off, Cuba added a condition of its own. On February 22nd, just four days after accepting Washington's proposal, the Cubans declared that a commission of Cuban negotiators was prepared to begin talks in Washington on the condition that, while talks were underway, neither the Eisenhower administration nor the Congress 
would undertake any action which might cause harm to the Cuban economy or people. This demand was a clear reference to pending legislation on the sugar quota and the ongoing debate in Washington over whether Cuba's portion of the quota should be cut or suspended. Washington's reaction was decidedly negative. Bonsell thought the new demand had been advanced for propaganda purposes. Moreover, the administration could hardly bind the Congress from acting on the sugar quota unless the president vetoed the legislation. Secretary of State Herter rejected the Cuban demand, but reaffirmed Washington's desire to negotiate. The embassy reported that the Cuban reaction to the U.S. note was heated, but that the Cubans would probably go ahead with the talks regardless. The fragile dialogue initiated by Amoedo's good offices might still have blossomed into formal negotiations had not other events intervened. On March 4th, the French freighter La Coubray, unloading an arms shipment from Belgium, exploded in Havana Harbor, killing 75 dock workers and wounding more than 200. Forty years later, Castro's recollection of the carnage was still vivid. I was at the main office of the National Institute of Agrarian Reform, he recounted. All of a sudden, we heard a very strong explosion, and the building itself was shaken. Minutes after, there was a second explosion. When we arrived at the docks, there was a crowd of people, wounded, wandering around, people trying to help. We could hear the sirens of the police and ambulances coming to pick up the wounded and the dead. I can still see the scene, as if I were looking at it now. The impact was huge. Castro was utterly convinced the CIA was responsible. He knew that Washington had blocked the British delivery of jet fighters to Cuba and had tried unsuccessfully to talk the Belgians out of delivering the munitions on La Coubray. We must look for the guilty ones among those who did not want us to have these weapons, he said at the funeral for those killed in the explosion. We have the right to think that those who through diplomacy tried to prevent us from getting this equipment could certainly have tried to achieve the same objective by other methods. Comparing the destruction of La Coubray to the sinking of the U.S. battleship Maine in Havana Harbor in 1898, which precipitated the Spanish-American War, Castro warned Washington not to make the mistake of thinking that it could once again send troops to abort Cuba's struggle for true independence. We are not in the 1910s or 1920s or 1930s. Cubans today, the Cubans of this generation, will fight, if they attack us, to the last drop of blood. Our choice would be patria o muerte, homeland or death. Washington called Castro's accusation of sabotage unfounded and irresponsible. The Cubans rejected the U.S. protest as insulting. Three days after Castro's funeral oration, Deputy Chief of Mission Braddock cabled Washington that the embassy country team, which had backed Bonsall's diplomatic efforts consistently and loyally, had now unanimously concluded, There is no hope that U.S. will ever be able to establish a satisfactory relationship with the Cuban government as long as it is dominated by Fidel Castro, Raul Castro, Che Guevara, and like-minded associates. In the wake of the explosion, Braddock wrote privately to Bonsall, I cannot help feeling this case will be a cause celebre in the history of U.S.-Cuban relations. Another event also undercut Washington's interest in talks, the February visit to Cuba of Soviet Vice President Anastas I. Mikoyan. Although Castro's tolerance of communists in his government had been an irritant for Washington since early 1959, Castro showed no special affinity for the Soviet Union during his first year in power, despite some behind-the-scenes contacts. 
The initial Soviet reaction to the Cuban Revolution was diffident, but in late 1959, Castro invited a Soviet trade mission in Mexico to visit Cuba, and Mikoyan arrived with it on February 4, 1960. The ten-day visit concluded with a trade agreement and $100 million in credit for Cuba. Shortly thereafter, Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev began to publicly praise the Cuban Revolution. Wayne Smith, then a junior foreign service officer in the Havana Embassy, recalled the impact Mikoyan's visit had on U.S. attitudes. Based on the warmth of the welcoming speeches, the degree to which the proverbial red carpet was rolled out for Mr. Mikoyan, our conclusion was that Prime Minister Castro had made his decision that Cuba was going to become a close ally of the Soviet Union. After that, Washington doubted the sincerity of Cuba's calls for negotiations. We quite frankly thought it was a stalling tactic. The U.S. government was no longer interested. Thus, we didn't explore the possibilities. In the aftermath of the La Cubre explosion, a semi-private feeler was sent out by a Cuban businessman with close ties to the CIA. Mario Lazo, legal advisor to the U.S. Embassy, approached Treasury Minister López Fresquet, confiding that the U.S. government was prepared to work aggressively to halt these exile flights from Florida that were burning Cuban sugarcane fields. Washington wanted to know if the Cubans, in return, would be prepared to engage in serious talks on a broad range of issues. López Fresquet immediately transmitted the query to Castro, who remarked, what an interesting thing this international chess game is. Fidel took the proposal under advisement. Two days later, on March 17th, President Dorticos informed López Fresquet that Fidel had decided not to respond. We don't trust the U.S., Dorticos explained. We think that what they want us to do is contradict ourselves. Once we admit publicly that they are on the level and friendly to us, they will not give Cuba anything. Fidel's instincts were right. As State Department official William Wheeland told his friend Adolf Burl, Washington's proposals to negotiate were intended to slowly close in on Castro by offering to negotiate everything and then taking him up on his desire to be clear of the United States. On March 17th, the same day Dorticos rejected Lazo's feeler, Eisenhower signed a top-secret authorization for a program of covert action against the Castro regime giving the CIA the green light to begin covert paramilitary operations to roll back the Cuban Revolution. Things Fall Apart Bonsell returned to Havana on March 20th, but there was little left for him to do. He conferred regularly with Ambassador Amoedo, who doggedly continued his mediation efforts, beseeching Castro at every opportunity to make peace with Washington. At a dinner party Amoedo hosted for Latin American ambassadors in April, Castro admitted he might have made some errors in dealing with the United States and purported to be willing to negotiate. Roa followed up with a formal proposal for talks soon thereafter, but nothing came of it. In reward for his efforts, however, Amoedo requested and received a signed photo of President Eisenhower to hang in his home. Bonsell would never again meet with Fidel. Castro didn't invite him, and Bonsell didn't ask. Fidel has insulted and offended our government on numerous occasions, Bonsell wrote to Rubottom. If he wants to see me, he can let me know. Nevertheless, Bonsell continued to argue that Washington should adhere to his policy of patience despite Cuba's intransigence. This would demonstrate to Latin America that the United States was not hostile to social change and that the breakdown in relations was Havana's fault. 
Moreover, Bonsall argued, if the United States exhibited overt hostility to the Cuban Revolution, it would rally nationalist sentiment behind Castro. Despite the accuracy of Bonsall's premises, he was essentially recommending that the United States do nothing in the face of Castro's defiance. For a superpower long dominant in its own sphere of influence, such a notion was anathema. Patience would be mistaken for passivity, and passivity for weakness, weakness that would encourage other nationalist forces across Latin America to challenge U.S. security and economic policy and interests. Moreover, 1960 was an election year, and as Bonsall knew full well, the American posture of moderation in the face of Castro's insulting and aggressive behavior was becoming a political liability. For an administration whose vice president was in the race, silently enduring Castro's attacks became untenable. If you can't stand up to Castro, how can you be expected to stand up to Khrushchev? Kennedy taunted Nixon on the campaign trail. As spring gave way to summer, the conflict between Cuba and the United States shifted from the diplomatic arena to the economic. Administration hardliners like Nixon and Assistant Secretary of State for Economic Affairs Thomas C. Mann had been arguing since the fall of 1959 that Washington should cut Cuba's sugar quota. In 1960, Cuba held one-third of the total U.S. sugar import quota and was paid two cents per pound above the world market price. To threaten Cuba's sugar quota was to threaten to demolish the Cuban economy. Bonsall and the State Department team working on Cuba vigorously opposed cutting the quota, which they called the ultimate weapon. Such a move would be counterproductive, they argued. It might cripple the Cuban economy, but it would not dislodge Castro's government. On the contrary, it would rally Cuban nationalist sentiment around Castro, allowing him to shift the blame for their economic and other troubles to the United States. Cutting the quota would inflict further political harm on Castro's opponents by placing them in the difficult position of seeming to side with the United States in measures taken against the interests of all Cubans. On the basis of this analysis, a State Department working group convened to explore options for economic sanctions recommended against them all. Even Rubottom's most conservative deputy, John Calvin Hill, worried that overt sanctions would strengthen Castro. We cannot expect patriotic and self-respecting Cubans, no matter how distasteful Castro's policies may be to them, to side with the United States, Hill cautioned, if we go so far along the lines of reprisals that the quarrel no longer is between Castro and the real interests of the Cuban people, but a quarrel between the United States and their country. These arguments carried the day, so long as Washington was intent on hiding its hostility behind a facade of diplomatic propriety. But as relations deteriorated and Castro's rhetoric became more heated, the arguments for restraint sounded increasingly hollow. Once the administration had settled on a strategy to remove Castro from power, the employment of economic sanctions seemed a logical complement to the CIA's covert support for the domestic opposition and paramilitary training of an exile force. It was silly, Eisenhower wrote later, to continue to give Cuba favored treatment. Bonsall's view was more strategic. He regarded Cuba's economic ties to the United States as a limiting condition on Castro's apostasy. When the fever of revolution finally broke, Cuba's economic dependency would force the government to come to political terms with Washington. If the United States, in a fit of pique, ruptured those ties of its own initiative, it would squander the best leverage it had over the future direction of the revolution. 
The casus belli that ignited the economic war between Cuba and the United States proved to be Soviet oil rather than Cuban sugar. As part of the trade agreement Mikoyan and Castro signed in February 1960, the Soviets sold Cuba crude oil in exchange for sugar. The first tanker of Soviet oil arrived on April 19th and was sent to refineries owned by Standard Oil, Texaco, and British Dutch Shell. Although the companies were uncomfortable departing from their normal procedure of refining their own crude, they were willing to cooperate rather than risk confrontation. But when they sought counsel from Treasury Secretary Robert B. Anderson, he told them, to their surprise, that refusing to accept Soviet oil would be consistent with U.S. policy, and he promised they would have the support of the U.S. government. The Cubans will no doubt treat this as a serious challenge and a test of strength, as indeed it will be. Bonsall warned when he heard of the decision. Drastic measures can be anticipated. When the oil companies refused to accept the Soviet crude, the Cubans seized the refineries. If the United States declared economic war against the revolution, Castro warned, he would nationalize everything the Americans owned in Cuba down to the nails in their shoes. The seizure of the refineries gave administration hardliners the perfect excuse to cancel the sugar quota. Secretary Anderson compared the seizures to Iran's nationalization of the oil industry in 1951. The CIA argued that economic sanctions were necessary to undermine Castro's popular support and boost the morale of his pro-U.S. opponents. Nixon argued for sanctions as a public rebuke to the Cubans in order to indicate that we would not allow ourselves to be kicked around completely, lest Uncle Sam be labeled Uncle Sucker. On July 3, 1960, Congress passed a law giving the president discretionary authority to reduce Cuba's sugar quota. The Cubans countered with a law authorizing Castro to nationalize U.S. property, stipulating that compensation would be paid from a fund derived from sugar sales to the United States. No sugar, no compensation. That same day, July 6th, Eisenhower made the announcement that everyone was expecting. The United States would buy no more Cuban sugar in 1960. Denouncing U.S. economic aggression, Castro retaliated by nationalizing most major U.S.-owned businesses on the island, worth a total of more than $600 million. Two months later, Washington escalated the economic war, prohibiting exports to Cuba except for food and medicine, thereby laying the foundation of the economic embargo that would be the central issue of contention in U.S.-Cuban relations for the next half-century. Castro countered by expropriating the remaining U.S. properties in Cuba, worth an additional $250 million. As U.S.-Cuban relations disintegrated, Soviet-Cuban relations blossomed. Within days of Eisenhower's decision to cut the Cuban sugar quota, Khrushchev wrote to Castro pledging that the Soviet Union would buy the sugar that the United States had refused. Privately, the Soviet premier was confident that U.S. hostility would drive Cuba into the Soviet camp like an iron filing to a magnet. In September, Fidel Castro returned to the United States to speak at the General Assembly of the United Nations. When Nikita Khrushchev stopped by to pay his respects, a photographer caught Castro enveloping the diminutive Russian in an enormous bear hug. The photo, which ran in major papers across the nation, symbolized perfectly Cuba's defection from the Western camp. By the fall of 1960, there was no disposition in Washington to reverse the decay of U.S.-Cuban relations. When Mexico, Brazil, and Canada approached the United States, offering their good offices, 
Rubottom argued against it on the grounds that the Mexicans identified too closely with Cuba, seeing a parallel between the Cuban Revolution and their own. The Brazilians were too enmeshed in their own domestic politics to be an honest broker, and the Canadians simply did not share Washington's concern about communism in Cuba. Finally, Rubottom added, the initiative for good offices may have come from Cuba itself, a fact he saw as disqualifying rather than hopeful. The initiative was rebuffed, as was another conciliatory signal from Havana sent through the Chilean government. When Bonsall suggested testing the diplomatic waters by opening discussions with Cuba over the sugar quota for 1961, Rubottom's successor as assistant secretary, Thomas Mann, killed the idea. There would be no improvement in U.S.-Cuban relations, Mann said, until Cuba cut its ties to the Sino-Soviet bloc and halted the export of revolution. The prospects that Castro will take action along this line seem to me to be very dim, if not non-existent. He concluded, Our best bet is to wait for a successor regime. Bonsall's tenure as ambassador to Cuba ended shortly thereafter, not with a bang, but a whimper. In October 1960, the day after Washington imposed the export embargo, Bonsall was unceremoniously recalled from Havana for extended consultations. He had lost the confidence of senior officials, who had long since given up on coexisting with Cuba and were tired of his incessant efforts to find a diplomatic path back from the precipice. The embassy was left open as a listening post from which CIA officers could maintain contact with the internal opposition. On January 2, 1961, speaking at a rally to celebrate the second anniversary of the triumph of the revolution, Castro denounced the embassy as a nest of spies and demanded that the staff be reduced from 87 to 11 within 48 hours. Eisenhower's response on January 3rd was to break relations. The final break came as a surprise to no one. The trajectory of relations had been leading inexorably toward it. U.S. dependents had been evacuated and sensitive documents shipped back to Washington months earlier. On January 4th, the embassy staff left by ferry. When the break came, diplomat Wayne Smith recalled, we merely packed our bags, turned out the lights, and were ready to go. Getting back to Havana would prove to be a lot harder. The Failure of Diplomacy Could the break have been avoided? The official breach in relations left Cuba and the United States in a state of undeclared war, with little means or inclination on either side to address their differences. In the years to come, diplomats would face major challenges trying to reopen the channels of communication through which the two governments could begin to re-engage. Cold War confrontations, Havana's revolutionary ideology, and Washington's hegemonic arrogance all conspired against attempts to bridge the deep divide between the two countries. The road back to normal diplomatic relations would prove long and treacherous. With perfect hindsight, the United States and Cuba might have found enough common ground to preserve their core interests while maintaining normal relations, but this would have required a radical change in the historical relationship between the two countries, far beyond what U.S. officials could imagine at the time. To Washington, Cuba was a reliable ally and business partner with more U.S. investment per capita than any other country in Latin America. To Cuban nationalists, Cuba was a pseudo-republic whose independence from Spain had been short-circuited by U.S. military occupation and the imposition of the demeaning Platt Amendment. Fidel Castro came to power in 1959 with two broad goals for his revolution, 
to win, once and for all, Cuba's independence from U.S. domination, and to radically change Cuban society in pursuit of greater social justice. Inevitably, both these goals brought him into conflict with the United States. Bonsall's declarations of goodwill notwithstanding, Castro knew Washington was covertly supporting his enemies. Dozens of Batista's henchmen were given refuge in the United States, some with the CIA's help, and Washington refused to extradite them. They began launching raids against Cuba almost immediately, and the United States did virtually nothing to stop them. CIA officers at the embassy in Havana met with disgruntled moderates, supported their opposition activities, and helped smuggle them into exile when the time came. In Washington, the issue most galling to U.S. officials was the least substantial, anti-Americanism, Fidel's incessant harsh rhetoric directed at the United States. U.S. officials understood that the rhetoric was partly, if not primarily, for domestic consumption. After an early speech at a massive rally defending the war crimes trials, Castro seemed genuinely surprised that U.S. chargé Daniel Braddock would interpret it as hostile to the United States. At a public rally, certain points of view needed to be expressed, Castro explained, but he had intended no hurt to the United States. Intended or not, U.S. officials took offense, and their reaction was visceral. It rankled to have Castro incessantly lambasting the United States, not just for its current policy, but for the whole long history of its relations with Cuba. Turning the other cheek was not the preferred response of a great power when challenged in its own backyard. Castro's rhetorical salvos made it especially difficult for Bonsall to sustain the policy of patience and forbearance. Because of Castro's anti-American rhetoric, there was a general reluctance on the part of the U.S. government to throw itself wholeheartedly into the job of winning Castro over to our side with a carrot. A White House post-mortem on the break-in relations concluded. The U.S. government, in the face of Cuban ungratefulness and ungentlemanly antics, generally limited its cooperative investment to bland oral extensions of goodwill. Concrete offers of aid were generally held in abeyance until the Cubans shaped up or swallowed their nationalist pride and asked for aid. Domestic politics was an important factor on the Cuban side as well. In the months after January 2, 1959, the broad, multi-class coalition that overthrew Batista began to unravel over the future course of the revolution. Relations with the United States became a focal point of this internal struggle. Moderates like Agramonte, Urrutia, Pazos, and López Fresquet hoped for friendly relations with Washington, combined with reformist domestic policies that would give Cuban capitalism a human face. The radicals of the 26th of July movement, like Raúl Castro, Che Guevara, and ultimately Fidel himself, wanted to free Cuba from the political and economic orbit of the United States and build socialism. Relations between Havana and Washington soured in tandem with the fading political fortunes of the moderates, who one U.S. official called the best vehicles for maintaining U.S. interests in the island. The negotiation in late 1959 and early 1960 ultimately came to naught because neither side felt compelled to drive them to a successful conclusion. The United States did not believe it needed to make any major concessions to Castro because it did not believe his government could survive the combined force of economic sanctions and covert political and paramilitary pressure. For the next half-century, the impetus to find common ground would have to compete in Washington with the hope that the revolution might be reversed.
On the Cuban side, the advantages of coexistence were more substantial, but the grounds were narrow. Unless Castro was willing to betray his own vision of a Cuba free from Washington's dominance, coexistence would be possible only if Washington willingly allowed Cuba to escape its orbit. That it would not do. Once the Soviet Union stepped in to provide economic and military assistance to cushion Cuba's separation from the United States, Castro had the means to realize his vision and had no compelling reason to make concessions at the bargaining table. Even after U.S. influence was eliminated, Cuban leaders remained ambivalent about restoring normal relations, weighing the advantages against the fear that Cuba might be pulled back into subordination. Looking back, most U.S. officials who dealt with Cuba during 1959-60 concluded that the break was inevitable. I do not believe that Castro, in spite of the statements he allowed Dorticos and Roa to make from time to time, ever contemplated meaningful relations with the United States. Bonsall wrote to Arthur Schlesinger, Jr. in 1962, a letter Schlesinger passed to President John F. Kennedy. He equated the success of his revolution with the complete destruction of U.S. interests in Cuba. But other U.S. officials blamed Washington as much as Havana. We mistakenly looked at Cuba through traditional eyeglasses and mistakenly regarded it as controllable, concluded the White House post-mortem in 1964. We were probably so used to thinking in the standard stereotyped terms of immense reservoirs of goodwill toward the U.S., and were so fully persuaded of Cuba's total dependence on the U.S. that we could not recognize the force of Cuban nationalist pride and apparently found it difficult to take Cuba or Castro seriously. Raul Castro also thought the break in relations was unavoidable because Washington would never accept the revolution's challenge to its dominance. The 1959 land reform was the Rubicon of our revolution, a death sentence for our U.S. relations he told actor Sean Penn in 2008. At that moment, there was no discussion about socialism or Cuba dealing with Russia, but the die was cast. Fidel himself evinced less certainty about the inevitability of the split. I must acknowledge that I may have had some responsibility for our first divorce, I as well as the United States, Castro admitted in 1978. In retrospect, I can see a number of things I wish I had done differently. We would not, in any event, have ended up close friends. The United States had dominated us too long. The Cuban Revolution was determined to end that domination. There was then an inherent conflict of interest. Still, even adversaries find it useful to maintain bridges between them. Fidel reflected. Perhaps I burned some of those bridges precipitously. There were times when I may have been more abrupt, more aggressive, than was called for by the situation. We were all younger then. We made the mistakes of youth. For the next half-century, diplomats in both capitals would struggle to rebuild the bridges between these two near neighbors, so divided by ideology and interests. 2. Kennedy The Secret Search for Accommodation the President does not agree that we should make the breaking of Sino-Soviet ties a non-negotiable point. We don't want to present Castro with a condition that he obviously cannot fulfill. We should start thinking along more flexible lines. The above must be kept close to the vest. The President himself is very interested in this one. Top Secret Eyes Only Memorandum for the Record on Negotiating with Castro, 
March 4, 1963. On November 22, 1963, the French journalist Jean Daniel was in Cuba to transmit a message of potential reconciliation from President John F. Kennedy to Fidel Castro. A gesture, as Castro would describe it years later, an indication of a desire to establish contact, to establish a certain kind of communication. At a government protocol house in Baradero Beach, local fishermen had brought a big, fresh fish for lunch, as a homage to Fidel, Daniel recalled. In the middle of the meal, as he and Castro were discussing Kennedy's secret feeler about the possibility of better relations, the phone rang, and Fidel received the shocking news that the President of the United States had been shot in Dallas. This is an end to your mission of peace. This is an end to your mission, Castro told Daniel. Everything has changed. John F. Kennedy's abbreviated presidency ended with an effort to reconcile with Cuba, but it did not begin that way. As a candidate, Kennedy tacked to the right of Vice President Richard M. Nixon, accusing the Eisenhower administration of abandoning Cuban fighters for freedom, the exiles who sought to roll back the Cuban Revolution. As president-elect, he was briefed by the CIA on Eisenhower's covert paramilitary project to invade Cuba with an exile brigade. As president, he ignored the entreaties of several Latin American governments that, at Cuba's behest, tried to intercede at the last minute to broker a U.S.-Cuban dialogue before the Bay of Pigs invasion. Instead, Kennedy gave the green light, sending a CIA-led paramilitary exile force ashore at Playa Giron on April 17, 1961, in the hope that the invaders would somehow spark a popular uprising. They didn't, and within 72 hours the brigade's beachhead had collapsed. More than 1,200 of them were taken prisoner. Victory has a thousand fathers, and defeat is an orphan, said Kennedy as he publicly acknowledged his personal responsibility for one of the great debacles in the history of U.S. foreign policy. I am the responsible member of government. We were hysterical about Castro at the time of the Bay of Pigs and thereafter, former Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara later testified before Congress. Indeed, the trauma of defeat and humiliation at the Bay of Pigs spurred both President Kennedy and his brother, Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy, to focus exceptional attention on how to redress the insult of their defeat. The President soon tasked his brother to oversee Operation Mongoose, a massive, multifaceted campaign of overt diplomatic and economic pressure to isolate and impoverish the island and covert paramilitary operations to overthrow the communist regime. President Kennedy imposed a full economic embargo in February 1962, which has remained the central pillar of a hostile U.S. policy for more than five decades. And, during Kennedy's abbreviated tenure as president, the CIA escalated its executive action efforts to kill Castro. An internal, top-secret CIA history on assassination attempts against the Cuban leader noted an extraordinary coincidence. It is likely that at the very moment President Kennedy was shot, a CIA officer was meeting with a Cuban agent in Paris and giving him an assassination device for use against Castro. Yet at that very same moment, Jean Daniel was in Cuba extending President Kennedy's olive branch of reconciliation. Indeed, while the history of Kennedy's thousand days is dominated by infamous acts of aggression against Cuba, his administration also secretly explored the alternative of accommodation. 
As more aggressive options proved unequal to the task of ousting Castro and the missile crisis dramatically demonstrated the dangers of hostility, the more civil option of trying to domesticate him through dialogue gained adherence, including the president himself. We wanted to make a reality check on what could or could not be done with Fidel Castro, McGeorge Bundy explained in an interview shortly before his death in 1996. The president clearly thought this was an exploration worth making, because it might lead to something. Amid economic destabilization, covert operations, and assassination plots, the Kennedy administration secretly but actively began to pursue what classified National Security Council, NSC, and CIA records referred to as the rapprochement track with Cuba. Since we had no Department of Peaceful Tricks, Bundy recalled, the key problem was finding a way to do it that was secret, secure, and reliable. To a policy built upon overt and covert nastiness, as one top-secret White House memorandum characterized U.S. operations, Kennedy's aides cautiously added the sweet approach, the possibility of quietly enticing Castro over to us. First Talks Below-Ground Dialogue the first opportunity for talks between a high-ranking Kennedy administration official and a high-ranking leader of the Cuban Revolution came at the founding meeting of the Alliance for Progress in Punta del Este, Uruguay. Spontaneous and informal, the encounter in the early morning hours of August 18, 1961, came at the initiative of Ernesto Che Guevara. During the conference, Guevara saw a young White House aide named Richard Goodwin smoking a cigar across the room. He sent an Argentine diplomat named Horacio Rodriguez Larreta to convey this dare. I bet he wouldn't smoke Cuban cigars. As Goodwin recalled his response, I said, hell, I'd smoke them in a minute, but I can't get them at home anymore. Next day in my room, there was a box of Cuban cigars with a handwritten note from Che Guevara. The note and the cohibas, delivered in an ornate mahogany box inlaid with the seal of the Republic of Cuba, were for President Kennedy. They represented Cuba's first real diplomatic gesture toward the United States in the aftermath of the Bay of Pigs invasion. To write to the enemy is difficult, Che's message read. I limit myself to extending my hand. Guevara proposed a meeting, but the head of the U.S. delegation, Treasury Secretary Douglas Dillon, vetoed the idea after Guevara's harsh criticism of the United States in his speech to the conference. Not to be deterred, Guevara tracked Goodwin down at a private party in Montevideo at 2 a.m. on the last night of the conference. While all the women of the party swarmed around him, Goodwin later reported to President Kennedy, Che sent a message over with the Argentine diplomat Rodriguez Larreta and Brazilian ambassador Edmundo Barbosa da Silva that he had something important to say to me. Goodwin remembered, I was very curious. Accompanied by the Argentine and Brazilian diplomats who acted as interpreters, Guevara and Goodwin went into a small side room. With just a couch and one chair in the room, Guevara immediately sat down on the floor in front of the couch. Goodwin sat himself down on the floor in front of the chair because I was not going to let him out-proletarianize me. Although Goodwin would report to President Kennedy that he broke up the conversation after twenty to forty minutes, Years later, he recounted that their meeting continued until dawn had lighted the Montevideo skies. Guevara thanked Goodwin for the Bay of Pigs. 
Their hold on the country had been a bit shaky, he explained, but the invasion allowed the leadership to consolidate most of the major elements of the country around Fidel. Perhaps, I answered, they would return the favor and attack Guantanamo. Oh, no, Guevara laughed. We would never be so foolish as to do that. From there, the conversation took a more serious turn. I had the definite impression that he had thought out his remarks very carefully. They were extremely well organized, Goodwin wrote in his secret report. High on Guevara's agenda was disabusing the United States of any false assumptions about the nature of the Cuban Revolution. The revolution was irreversible. It could not be overthrown internally, and the United States should not engage the myth that Fidel was a moderate, surrounded by a bunch of fanatic and aggressive men. The revolution was strong, Guevara told Goodwin. The Bay of Pigs invasion transformed them from an aggrieved little country to an equal. Empowered as an equal, Che pressed for a dialogue toward some type of coexistence with Washington. They would like a modus vivendi, at least an interim modus vivendi, Goodwin reported. Of course, he said, it was difficult to put forth a practical formula for such a modus vivendi. He knew because he had spent a lot of time thinking about it. Guevara proposed a formula for negotiations in which Cuba would offer five concessions. One, while Cuba would not return expropriated properties, it could commit to paying for them through trade. Two, Cuba would agree to forego a political alliance with the East, even though the revolution's natural sympathies lay in that direction. Three, Cuba would have free elections, but only after the institutionalization of the revolution and creation of a one-party state. Four, Cuba would be willing to address its activities in other Latin American countries, and, five, of course, they would not attack Guantanamo. In conclusion, Guevara made a pragmatic suggestion, one that Cuba would invoke again and again in pressing for diplomatic dialogue over the next five decades. He knew it was difficult to negotiate these things, but we could open up some of these issues by beginning to discuss secondary issues, such as airplane hijackings, as a cover for more serious conversation. And Che made a final point that would become a fixture of Cuba's negotiating position in all future talks. Cuba could discuss no formula that would mean giving up the type of society to which they were dedicated. Any negotiation between the two countries was likely to be impossible given the irreconcilable differences that exist between the two, Goodwin told Che, according to a summary of the meeting by the Brazilian ambassador. Goodwin nevertheless promised Guevara that he would report the conversation to the highest level of his government. Both agreed to keep their meeting a secret. When Goodwin returned to Washington, he went directly to the White House to brief Kennedy and give him Guevara's box of cigars. This gift represented Cuba's first attempt, although certainly not its last, at cigar diplomacy. The cigars certainly caught JFK's attention as Goodwin put them on his desk in the Oval Office. He opened them, and he says, Are they good? And I said, Good, Mr. President. I said, No, they are the best. Whereupon, he immediately took one out of the box, bit off the end, and lit it up. Then he turned on me and said, You should have smoked the first one. I said, Too late now, Mr. President. Following that meeting, Goodwin drafted a pivotal memo to the President, evaluating what he called Cuba's below-ground dialogue with the United States and its implications for U.S. policy. Cuba desires an understanding with the United States, 
Goodwin surmised, because it was undergoing severe economic stress and because the Soviet Union is not prepared to undertake the large effort necessary to get them on their feet. Since Guevara was one of the most committed communists in Cuba, in Goodwin's analysis, there were probably others in the Cuban government even more dedicated to an accommodation with the United States. Although he recommended that the United States avoid the impression we are obsessed with Castro, most of Goodwin's action options focused not on exploring the diplomatic opening from Cuba, but rather on escalating U.S. operations to undermine the revolution. Economic warfare should be quietly intensified, psychological and propaganda operations escalated, and covert subversion and sabotage stepped up. Only at the very end of his memo did Goodwin suggest that the administration seek some way of continuing the below-ground dialogue that Che has begun. We can thus make it clear that we want to help Cuba and would help Cuba if it would sever communist ties and begin democratization. In this way, we can begin to probe for the split in top leadership which might exist. To pursue that option, Goodwin tasked the CIA with finding what he described as a precise covert procedure for continuing below-ground dialogue with the Cuban government, an operational technique that would allow the administration to secretly talk to Fidel without having to look over its shoulder at the impact on domestic politics. But nothing came of Guevara's initiative. Within days of their meeting in Montevideo, Goodwin was assigned to head a Cuban task force made up of White House, CIA, Defense, and State Department officials dedicated to intensifying covert operations against Cuba to roll back the revolution. Within several weeks, he would draft the initial strategy paper for Operation Mongoose, the most extensive and expensive U.S. effort to overthrow Castro since the Bay of Pigs, which President Kennedy authorized on November 30, 1961. Years later, Goodwin would reflect on the lost opportunity to continue the low-level dialogue he had started with Che Guevara in 1961. It wasn't a bad deal, he wrote, and given what was to come later, a detached analyst might urge that it be pursued. But the mood in America was not one of detachment. The emotion that had always surrounded the problem of Cuba had, if anything, been heightened by our defeat at the Bay of Pigs. To make a deal with Castro, any kind of deal, would have been politically difficult, perhaps impossible. Since the Kennedy White House chose to ignore Guevara's proposal, Goodwin concluded, we will never know. First Negotiations The Bay of Pigs Prisoners While the Bay of Pigs spawned the Kennedy's animus toward Fidel Castro, it also provided the opportunity for the first substantive U.S.-Cuban negotiations since diplomatic relations were severed in January 1961. President Kennedy's deep sense of angst and obligation over the capture and imprisonment of 1,214 members of the Exile Brigade led him to authorize a major behind-the-scenes negotiation to obtain their release. They trusted me, and they're in prison now because I fucked up, Kennedy told Goodwin. I have to get them out. Within a week of the invasion, Cuban officials signaled a deal might be possible. President Osvaldo Dorticos told foreign diplomats in Havana that his government wanted to find a solution to the tension which exists between the two countries and which will lead to a form of peaceful coexistence, diplomatic and even friendly relations, if the government of the United States so desires. Releasing the prisoners suited Castro's purposes, 
albeit in a way that underscored Cuba's historic victory over the Colossus of the North. Executing the captured brigade members would be politically damaging, though Fidel threatened to do it. Imprisoning them indefinitely would be costly and become a permanent focal point of international pressure. Far better to barter them for what Fidel called indemnification from the United States and use the process to generate positive propaganda as well as perhaps create an opening for broader talks with Washington. Speaking to an audience of small farmers on May 17, 1961, Castro proposed an exchange, the imperialist soldiers for U.S.-built tractors. The Pentagon, the Central Intelligence Agency, and all who sent them on that adventure love them so much? Very well. Let them send 500 bulldozers, and we will return them. He was willing to negotiate with Kennedy administration officials, members of Congress, or prominent private citizens to make the necessary arrangements. And he would release a ten-member delegation of the prisoners to go to the United States and begin negotiations. Now, Fidel said, it was up to Kennedy. Ahora, el señor Kennedy tiene la palabra. To avoid the high political costs of government-to-government talks with Castro, Kennedy personally recruited four prestigious citizens, former First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt, United Automobile Workers leader Walter Ruther, Milton Eisenhower, brother of the former president, and Joseph Dodge, President Eisenhower's budget director, to create a front group, the Tractors for Freedom Committee. On May 22nd, the newly formed committee met at the Statler Hilton Hotel in Washington with the delegation of prisoners sent by Castro to present his demands for 500 Caterpillar D8 large tread-type tractors, or comparable machines, and five years' worth of spare parts. Faced with right-wing political attacks charging that the heavy tractors could be used for military construction, the committee organized a team of agricultural specialists to evaluate Cuba's needs. It then decided Castro's plans for agricultural reform did not require the powerful D-8 tractors. On June 2nd, the committee cabled Havana, offering 50 tread-type tractors and 450 smaller rubber-tire tractors, which Castro disparaged as ridiculous little toy tractors. The committee dictated how many tractors would be delivered and how many prisoners would have to be released with each delivery, and it gave Castro a June 7th deadline to accept their proposal. Predictably, Castro rejected this patronizing position. Your committee has not taken really practical steps to bring negotiations to immediate positive results, he wrote on June 6th, and added the warning, Cuba has the right to impose exemplary punishment on those who have committed against their own country a crime of high treason while they were acting under the orders of a foreign government. Rather than abandon the dialogue, however, Castro invited Eleanor Roosevelt or Milton Eisenhower to come to Havana and continue the negotiations face to face. Ignoring Castro's request, the committee sent its team of agricultural specialists to Havana with instructions to avoid political issues and focus on equipment. When Castro met with them on June 14th, he expressed his disappointment that no senior member of the committee had come. He wanted to discuss a wider political agenda. Instead, he and the specialists spent three and a half hours debating the merits of the larger bulldozers versus smaller farming tractors. Finally, Fidel declared he would compromise on the type of machinery, or accept credits totaling $28 million, or, alternatively, exchange the brigade members for political prisoners in Europe instead of tractors. We must talk openly and frankly, he told the delegation.
We want to release tension. We would like to have a change of relations. But the committee rejected Castro's alternative proposals and refused to negotiate further. At the secret instruction of the White House, the committee reiterated its original proposal to Castro and gave him until June 23rd to take it or leave it. Castro dismissed their demand but continued to pursue the possibility of a deal. Publicly, he again dispatched the prisoner delegation to Florida to convey Cuba's counterproposals. Privately, he passed a message through New York Times reporter Tad Zulk to White House aide Arthur Schlesinger, Jr. that a successful negotiation on the Rebels for Tractors affair could lead to further U.S.-Cuban negotiations. Cuba would be interested in the resumption of some form of relationship with the United States if Kennedy would quit trying to destroy his revolution, Zulk reported. The impression is he would like to reopen the door a bit. In November, Attorney General Robert Kennedy arranged for Zolk to brief the President. For an hour and a half, Zolk sat in the Oval Office while President Kennedy, in his rocking chair, peppered him with questions, mostly about how Castro's government could be overthrown. But he also asked about Zolk's conversation with Castro in June. Is it possible, in your judgment, for the United States and Cuba to establish some kind of dialogue? Kennedy inquired. Zolk replied that Castro had told him he did not regard Kennedy as his enemy, and that, if there was anyone in the United States government with whom he, Castro, could come to terms and establish a dialogue, it would be President Kennedy. The President told Zolk, offhandedly, that if he spoke with Castro again, he should tell him that Kennedy, too, hoped that some way could be found, somewhere along the line, to establish an understanding. In reality, dialogue was not a high presidential priority. Kennedy's feelings of personal responsibility for the Bay of Pigs prisoners notwithstanding, he placed greater importance on demonstrating U.S. resolve against Cuba and insulating the White House from conservative charges that his administration was soft on communism. Not ready to openly negotiate for the brigade prisoners, the White House abandoned the Tractors for Freedom Committee to ridicule and misunderstanding by the public and the conservative press, according to Milton Eisenhower. The public should have been told from the first, and should even now be told that the foreign policy decision was governmental, he told the president, in what he later called, the bitterest letter I ever wrote. Only six weeks after Kennedy had secretly created it, the committee disbanded on June 23rd. The Bay of Pigs prisoners would remain in Cuban jails for another 18 months. Project Mercy. After the talks broke down, the prisoner delegation and families of the brigade members formed a new organization, the Cuban Families Committee for the Liberation of the Prisoners of War, CFC, to raise the $28 million that Castro had demanded to purchase the tractors. Their campaign took on new urgency when Cuba put the prisoners on trial for treason, after which the prisoners and their relatives fully expected that some, if not all of them, would be sentenced to the firing squad. Working through a personal contact with Celia Sanchez, Fidel's chief of staff and confidant, the CFC launched a desperate, last-ditch effort to convince Castro that an exchange was still possible. Simultaneously, the group turned to the U.S. government for help in raising the necessary funds. When neither the brigade's CIA contacts in Miami nor the Cuba desk at the State Department would assist the organization, some frustrated CFC representatives impulsively marched into Robert Kennedy's office at the Justice Department and demanded an audience. 
To their surprise, the sympathetic Attorney General agreed not only to see them, but to actually help them. I give you my word, we will do everything possible to keep them from being shot. He pledged. Kennedy referred the CFC delegation to Richard Goodwin, who then wrote a secret action paper for National Security Advisor McGeorge Bundy, outlining a plan to convince Castro not to execute the prisoners. We are considering an approach to Castro, through intermediaries, to make a deal for the life of the prisoners, offering money or food to spare their lives. Goodwin reported, This would probably be carried out, if it is carried out, through voluntary relief agencies. Instead of execution, however, the brigade prisoners were found guilty and sentenced to 30 years in prison, or fines totaling $62 million. That was now the price of their freedom, Fidel told the CFC members during a meeting in April at the home of Berta Barreto de los Eros, the mother of one of the prisoners and the committee's liaison in Cuba. When the CFC members raised the idea of an exchange for foodstuffs, Castro replied that he would probably find acceptable a formula for releasing the remaining prisoners based on $26 million in foodstuffs and medicines and the balance of the $62 million in cash. Secretary Rusk reported to the President. Castro told the committee not to be discouraged and that he was confident something could be worked out within 90 days. As a good-faith gesture, Castro agreed to release 60 sick and wounded prisoners as long as the CFC pledged to pay their fines of $2.9 million later. Harry Ruiz Williams was one of those prisoners. He developed a close personal relationship with Attorney General Robert Kennedy and would eventually become a key liaison between the White House and exile operatives working to overthrow Castro. In June 1962, he approached Robert Kennedy for support in finding a chairman for the CFC who could lead a fundraising drive. Kennedy told him to seek out a man who knows how to deal with Castro, at the time the most famous international negotiator in the United States, if not the world, James B. Donovan. A Harvard Law School graduate, Office of Strategic Services, OSS veteran, and assistant prosecutor at the Nuremberg Trials, Donovan gained fame as the man who arranged the dramatic February 1962 prisoner exchange of convicted Russian spy Rudolf Abel for the captured American U-2 pilot Francis Gary Powers. Donovan's success in negotiating this east-west spy swap, he personally escorted Abel to the middle of the Glienicke Bridge between East Berlin and Potsdam, and then returned with Powers, earned him distinction as a meta-diplomat. In June 1962, Donovan agreed to publicly represent the CFC and, privately, the U.S. government. Before traveling to Havana to begin talks with Castro, Donovan met twice in Washington with Robert Kennedy and once with CIA Director John McCone. Mr. McCone's judgment is that I should immediately proceed to attempt to open negotiations with the Castro government with the twin objectives of, one, lowering the minimum figure demanded by Castro, and, two, arranging that a substantial part of this sum would be payable in food and medicine, as Donovan recorded his instructions. At McCone's direction, the CIA established a safe house in Miami for Donovan to use in his trips back and forth to Havana. A secret code was designed for phone communications while Donovan was in Havana. The CIA even provided his mission with an operational code name, Project Mercy. Donovan made his first trip to Havana on August 30th and met with Castro for four hours the next day. The U.S. negotiator set a positive tone by immediately agreeing to call the process an indemnity 
rather than a humanitarian exchange, something Castro had demanded previously as an acknowledgement that Cuba deserved compensation for the costs of the invasion. Their negotiations began around Donovan's proposal to provide Cuba $5 million in cash or 20 to $25 million in food products. Fidel rejected this offer as humiliating, far below the court-imposed fines of $62 million. He insisted that the only cash he wanted was the $2.9 million the CFC had agreed to when he had released 60 prisoners in the spring. He would consider foodstuffs and other goods with a value commensurate with the $62 million in fines and would submit a list of what Cuba wanted. Cuba's position enabled Donovan to focus on substituting medicines and drugs for foodstuffs. They were smaller in size and higher in value than food and would require lower shipping costs. Throughout September, Donovan made arrangements with the Kennedy administration to give tax write-offs to drug manufacturers who donated supplies for Cuba from older inventories. He also arranged a letter of credit from the Bank of Canada to cover delivery and shipping costs. He then returned to Cuba on October 3rd to continue talks with the Cuban authorities. The second negotiating session did not go smoothly. Donovan endured a hostile meeting with Cuba's Vice Minister of the Interior, Captain Jose Abrantes, and then a hellish drive over unpaved, pothole-riddled roads to Varadero Beach to meet Castro at the DuPont estate. The talks became contentious over a number of points, whether the retail value or the wholesale value of the goods would be used to calculate the $62 million, Cuba's demand for a letter of credit of at least $16 million to guarantee the delivery of the goods, and whether Castro would release all the prisoners when the first shipment arrived or release them in stages corresponding to arriving shipments. Absolutely no dice on releasing these boys in groups. They all have to come out as soon as the initial delivery is made, Donovan argued, and then dangled a carrot for Castro. You'll just have to rely on the fact that, among other things, the relationship created here could open a channel of communication that might be of mutual benefit to all parties concerned. Donovan returned to Miami and, over a secure phone, reported optimistically to his CIA contact on the progress in the negotiations. On the basis of that report, CIA Director John McCone convened a special Saturday afternoon meeting at the State Department on October 8th to brief high-level officials that an agreement was imminent. The CIA had contracted with Pan Am for planes to bring the prisoners out commencing today or tomorrow if all goes well, according to McCone, and Donovan would return to Havana and fly out with the last group. President Kennedy also received a briefing that day and approved the general conclusions of the arrangement and plans, including that the U.S. government would admit publicly without details to being behind the negotiations. On October 10th, Donovan shuttled back to Havana with an approved draft memorandum of agreement, reflecting the terms he and Castro discussed at Varadero. But the meeting did not go well. Castro balked at Donovan's retail pricing numbers and still refused to release all the prisoners after only the first shipment. He also wanted to revise the list of goods Cuban officials had previously provided to include baby food and different kinds of drugs. Donovan reacted with controlled anger over Castro's apparent retreat from their tentative agreement. What exactly did Castro think he could do with the prisoners? You can't shoot them, Donovan pointed out. If you want to get rid of them, if you're going to sell them, you've got to sell them to me. There's no world market for prisoners. If Castro had decided he did not want to go through with the deal, Donovan declared, 
There is not much point in my staying here. I will go home. Negotiations broke off on October 11, 1962, with an assumption on both sides that they would soon resume. Four days later, however, analysts at the CIA's National Photographic Interpretation Center, examining reconnaissance pictures taken by a U-2 spy plane, spotted clear evidence of the installation of Soviet nuclear-capable medium-range ballistic missiles, MRBMs, on the island. The Cuban Missile Crisis had begun. Crisis Communications On October 16th, the day the CIA briefed the President on the U-2 intelligence, Kennedy gathered a select group of advisors, officially known as the XCOM, Executive Committee, to decide on a strategic response. His Secretary of Defense, Robert McNamara, presented him with three basic options. The political option of approaching Castro and approaching Khrushchev, a naval blockade to stop Soviet ships carrying weapons to Cuba, and military action directed against Cuba. Fearing that a U.S. assault on Cuba could escalate into the ultimate doomsday scenario, nuclear Armageddon, the President chose option two to buy time to negotiate a resolution of the crisis with Khrushchev. But as the risk of war between the superpowers mounted over the next thirteen days, Kennedy also authorized a complicated clandestine approach to Castro. Washington's communications with Cuba, undertaken through Brazilian intermediaries, became the most enduring secret of the Missile Crisis, an untold story until it was uncovered by historian James G. Hirschberg forty years later in the Foreign Ministry Archives of Brazil. Since the breach in U.S.-Cuban relations, Brazil had tried to position itself as a regional broker for rapprochement. During an April 1962 state visit to Washington by the new Brazilian president, João Goulart, his foreign minister, Francisco Santiago Dantes, raised the possibility of approaching Castro on Washington's behalf. The time was right, Dantes urged Secretary of State Rusk, because Castro and hardline communists in his government were engaged in a power struggle. Brazil, Dantes suggested, was in a good position to follow and influence the situation. If Castro became a Caribbean Tito, would that be acceptable to the United States? Rusk responded that, from the U.S. viewpoint, two things are not negotiable. One, the direct Cuban ties with Moscow, and two, Cuban subversive actions elsewhere in the hemisphere. But if Cuba would break with Moscow, this would create a new situation. There was nothing to lose from Dantes's initiative, Rusk assured CIA Director John McCone, who was the administration's leading opponent of any rapprochement with Castro. Since we could try it without commitment, he might as well play his hand and see what happens. A third-party interlocutor could be useful, Rusk argued presciently, if only to establish a channel of communication with Castro, as the ability to reach him might be important at some future time. On April 22nd, the Brazilian ambassador in Havana, Luis Bastian Pinto, met with Castro to suggest that Cuba distance itself from Moscow and to offer help mediating the conflict with the United States, since Brazil represented the only significant channel left for Cuba to the West. Fidel was noncommittal. He thanked the Brazilian for the offer of assistance and promised to get back to him soon with concrete suggestions, but he never did. Although the Brazilian diplomatic effort produced no results, the Kennedy administration continued to reach out to Castro about Cuba's potential return to the Western orbit. In an amazing coincidence, just hours before the White House learned of the existence of Soviet missiles on the island, 
the president sent a message to Castro through Algerian leader Ahmed Benbella, who was visiting Washington on October 15, 1962. With Benbella headed to Havana the next day, Kennedy seized the opportunity to discuss U.S.-Cuban relations. The United States had no intention of invading Cuba, Kennedy assured the Algerian leader, and reconciliation would be possible if Castro left his Latin American neighbors in peace. The United States could tolerate a national communist regime in Cuba as long as it did not serve as a spearhead of Soviet military power. Do you mean by this, Mr. Kennedy, a Yugoslavia or a Poland? Ben Bella asked, to be sure he understood. Yes, Kennedy answered. Ben Bella arrived in Havana on October 16th and dutifully recounted this conversation to Castro. But by then, Kennedy's message had been overtaken by the unfolding missile crisis. In Cuba, Soviet and Cuban personnel were laboring round the clock to make the missile sites operational. In Washington, Kennedy was holding his initial meetings with the XCOM and weighing a massive military attack on the island. At the very first meeting of the XCOM on October 16th, Secretary Rusk suggested that Washington transmit a message calling on Castro to break with the Soviets and include a New York Times article quoting a Soviet official as saying, We'll trade Cuba for Berlin. The idea was to coax Castro to eject the missiles along with the Soviets by offering him a return to the West as an alternative to U.S. military intervention and regime change. As Rusk reiterated at the second evening meeting of the XCOM, this might be the issue on which Castro might elect to break with Moscow if he knew that he were in deadly jeopardy. Rusk instructed his assistant secretary for Inter-American Affairs, Edwin Martin, to draft a possible message to the bearded one. The subsequent top-secret letter to Mr. F.C. warned that unless he quickly communicated to Washington that he would not tolerate this misuse of Cuban territory, measures of vital significance for the future of Cuba will have to be initiated. These early XCOM meetings focused not on diplomacy, however, but on military options to take out the missiles, an invasion, a blockade, or a more limited airstrike coupled with a blockade. During the first several days of the crisis, military officials and Secretary of Defense McNamara opposed any form of communication to either Castro or Khrushchev that would give away the element of surprise. I don't think the message to Castro's got much in it, President Kennedy concluded as he considered the options. Nevertheless, the concept of communicating with Castro kept coming up during the XCOM's deliberations. In a memo to the President the next day, UN Ambassador Adlai Stevenson urged Kennedy to have your personal emissaries deliver your messages to C and K. Martin proposed trying to negotiate a coexistence pact with Cuba if Castro ejected the Soviets. At a meeting on October 19th, the XCOM briefly considered the idea of sending the U.S. ambassador to Mexico as a secret emissary to see Castro and try to persuade him that letting the Soviets set up missile bases in his country was a suicidal act. In one of the most dramatic presidential addresses ever given to the nation, on October 22nd, Kennedy disclosed the discovery of the Soviet missiles in Cuba and the U.S. response. In announcing the imposition of a strict quarantine of all Soviet ships carrying offensive military equipment to Cuba, Kennedy promised both patience and resolve toward forcing the Soviets to dismantle the installations. 
we will not prematurely or unnecessarily risk the costs of worldwide nuclear war, in which even the fruits of victory would be ashes in our mouths, but neither will we shrink from that risk at any time it must be faced. This is the end of the CD. The audiobook continues on the next CD. As U.S. and Soviet naval forces approached one another on the seas off Cuba and the danger of a superpower confrontation escalated by the hour, the idea of a back-channel approach to Castro finally caught the President's interest. On October 24th, the NSC outlined a four-point communication. A. Point out to him that just as the Soviets lie to us, they lie to the Cuban people. They are not going to bail him out. B. He, therefore, is under an obligation only to the Cuban people. C. There is only one course open to him, to expel the Soviets and their weapons, and make his peace with the Organization of American States, OAS, under its terms. D. He has only a short time to act. A handwritten note by a member of the NSC staff succinctly summed up the approach. Get word to Castro once ships turn back that if he kicks out Sobes, we can live with him. As U.S. military planners pressed the president to set a date to attack Cuba, Kennedy instructed the XCOM to revisit alternative courses of action. In response, the State Department compiled a top-secret options paper outlining a political path to resolving the crisis. One option was an approach to Castro, to be made through a Latin American representative in Cuba, probably the Brazilian ambassador. The message would warn Castro that failure to expel the Soviets and their missiles would result in the overthrow of his regime, if not its physical destruction. If he cooperated, however, an alternative message would be sent. We would have to give some assurances, regardless of whether we intended to carry them out, that we would not ourselves undertake to overthrow the regime or support others trying to do so. At the XCOM meeting the next day, President Kennedy approved sending Castro a message, albeit disguised as a Brazilian communique. Once again, CIA Director McCone objected, on the grounds that such a deal would sort of insulate Castro from further actions. But the President overruled him. I think we ought to concentrate on the missiles now, he determined. Kennedy's secret White House taping system captured his pessimism about this initiative. It probably won't get any place, he mused, but time is running out for us. In a top-secret eyes-only cable sent to Ambassador Lincoln Gordon in Rio de Janeiro, Rusk stated that it was time to discuss with Castro alone, repeat alone, a way out of the missile crisis. He instructed Gordon to meet with Brazil's new prime minister, Hermes Lima, and ask him to have Brazil's ambassador to Havana, Luis Bastian Pinto, transmit this message to Castro as if it were a Brazilian initiative. The action of the Soviet Union in using Cuban soil as sites for offensive nuclear missiles capable of striking most of the Western Hemisphere has placed the future of the Castro regime and the well-being of the Cuban people in great jeopardy. The Brazilian intermediary would then offer the carrot of better relations with the United States and the rest of Latin America if Castro would expel the Soviets and stop supporting revolutionaries in Latin America. From such actions, many changes in the relations between Cuba and the OAS countries, including the U.S., could flow. Finally, Bastian Pinto would tell Castro that time was very short for him to decide 
whether to devote his great leadership abilities to the service of his Cuban peoples or to serving as a Soviet pawn. To disguise the origins of this message, U.S. Embassy officers translated it into Portuguese and typed it on plain paper. Ambassador Gordon then passed it to Brazil's foreign minister at a midnight meeting on October 27th, emphasizing the extreme importance of avoiding any indication that this is our idea. Gordon described the message as an extremely important and sensitive diplomatic initiative requiring utmost secrecy, with perhaps vital bearing on peace. But this peculiar back-channel effort did not go as planned. In addition to transmitting the U.S. message, President Goulart added a message of his own, that Brazil was astounded and dismayed by the way in which Fidel had put Cuba in position of being mere merchandise of USSR to be traded for Turkish bases, regardless of Cuban sovereignty. And, instead of allowing Ambassador Bastian Pinto, who had previously dealt with Castro, to transmit the special message, the Brazilian courier, General José Albino da Silva, met with Fidel himself. Finally, by the time General Albino arrived in Havana on October 29th, the Soviets had already announced they were withdrawing the missiles. Castro was openly incensed at Nikita Khrushchev for negotiating a deal to end the crisis without even consulting him. On the morning of October 29th, the angry Cuban leader went to the Brazilian embassy to hear what General Albino had to say. He listened with close attention and a certain degree of receptivity, Albino reported, as the Brazilian emissary presented proposals to move beyond the crisis into a new era of relations with the United States and Latin America. The government of Brazil, Albino told him, saw three essential conditions to passing through the crisis in Cuban relations with rest of hemisphere and normalizing them. A. Demilitarization, in sense of destruction of types of offensive weapons, bases, etc., which might be a base for Cuban armed attacks on neighbors. B. Agreement to stop receiving arms, which might accumulate war material exceeding needs for Cuban defense. C. Abstention by Cuba from acting as a base for ideological aggression through export of propaganda, funds, etc. In response, Castro had one demand, that the United States abandon its base at Guantanamo as a condition of success in any set of negotiations for normalizing Cuban relations with the hemisphere. Built at the turn of the century, the base had no real military relevance for the United States, Castro argued, and it was humiliating for Cubans. In Ambassador Gordon's report to Washington on the talks, he noted that injection of Guantanamo into discussions at this time would rule out any serious negotiation. With the protracted tensions in November and December over removing the Soviet missile systems from Cuba, this back-channel initiative went nowhere. Moreover, the Kennedy administration quickly soured on Brazil as a neutral intermediary, starting with Goulart's indiscreet leak of the initiative to the New York Times. The article, Brazilian Reports Success in Cuban Conciliation Talks, quoted Albino as stating that his mission had been a complete success that saved Cuba from U.S. intervention and contributed to the preservation of peace. By trumpeting its role, the Goulart administration had violated its assurances that the mission would remain secret, Ambassador Gordon noted in an angry démarche to Prime Minister Lima several days later. The publicity could only add to Castro's prestige and perhaps fortify his intransigence. Meta-Diplomacy Donovan Returns 
In the aftermath of the missile crisis, some hardliners in the Kennedy administration saw an opportunity for the United States to get rid of Castro once and for all. CIA Director John McCone and others lobbied hard, and successfully, for the President to forgo signing any UN agreement that would formalize the non-invasion pledge Washington made to end the crisis. For them, the latitude to overthrow the Cuban regime was more important than a formal, codified resolution to the most dangerous international crisis of the 20th century. But while the CIA saw an opportunity to overthrow Castro, other officials saw an opportunity to reach an accommodation with him. They understood that the deal to end the crisis significantly raised the threshold of justification for any future invasion and that CIA covert operations were unlikely to bring about regime change. By January 1963, Bundy advised Kennedy that there was well-nigh universal agreement that Mongoose is at a dead end. Indeed, the National Security Council would soon close it down. These policymakers noted that the breakdown in relations between Moscow and Havana had left Castro less intransigent and more inclined to reconsider his ties to the USSR and to Washington. The Soviet refusal to run the quarantine and its acquiescence in withdrawing the missiles shook the foundation of Cuban foreign policy. A State Department intelligence report, Future Relations with Castro, concluded several months later. Castro has indicated, sometimes vaguely, sometimes rather clearly, through various channels, public as well as private, that he is interested in an accommodation with the United States. The report continued. His immediate disillusion over the Soviet missile crisis posture probably prompted him to grope for a policy which would diminish his dependence upon the Soviet Union. James Donovan was the first private channel through which Castro passed that indication. On November 20, 1962, Donovan reported to Attorney General Robert Kennedy that Castro was anxious to conclude the transactions over the Bay of Pigs prisoners. The Attorney General immediately moved into high gear to organize the government and the private sector to assist Donovan's negotiations, and he assigned a Kennedy associate, John Nolan, to help facilitate the terms of an agreement. Kennedy instructed Donovan to return to Cuba and finalize the deal for their release by Christmas Day. When Donovan arrived in Havana on December 18th, the Cubans received him with something akin to the red carpet treatment. The foreign minister greeted him at the airport and told him a special wood humidor filled with cigars awaited him as a gift from Fidel Castro. Castro met Donovan soon after he arrived and immediately agreed that Christmas seemed an appropriate deadline. As final negotiations got down to the nuts and bolts, however, complications arose. Despite Donovan's efforts to substitute food and medicine for the $2.9 million in cash that Castro had demanded for releasing the original sick and wounded prisoners, the Cuban leader refused to budge. The Cubans judged the list of goods that Donovan had assembled to be unacceptable. Donovan was forced to arrange for the immediate trip of former U.S. Surgeon General Leonard Scheel to Havana on December 20th, to help Cuban officials understand the nature of the pharmaceuticals the United States proposed to ship. When Castro expressed considerable skepticism about the size of the first shipment that had already been loaded onto a freighter called the African Pilot, Donovan arranged a clandestine night visit of three Cuban Red Cross members to inspect the cargo. The whole prisoner release deal almost fell apart when the three Cubans deemed specific items on board to be unacceptable and demanded they be removed. 
Only when Nolan threatened to expose their presence in Miami to the anti-Castro exile community did they abandon their efforts to hold up the shipment. On December 21st, Cuban officials and members of the Families Committee finally signed a memorandum of agreement for the release of the prisoners. The agreement assured the delivery, in stages, of $53 million in foodstuffs, medicines, and related equipment by July 1, 1963, with the prisoners being released upon delivery of the first shipment covered by the letter of credit. When the African pilot docked in Havana Harbor on December 23rd, the first airlift of prisoners began to leave from the San Antonio de los Baños airport. A second airlift scheduled for Christmas Eve was almost canceled when Castro demanded the $2.9 million that the Families Committee had committed to when the initial 60 prisoners had been released the previous April. In less than 24 hours, Robert Kennedy personally secured the money from two donors, and the evacuation continued. How Porcupines Make Love The successful liberation of the captured Bay of Pigs Brigade set the stage for extended talks between Donovan and Castro that increasingly focused on improving U.S.-Cuban relations. Donovan laid the groundwork for future negotiations by asking Castro to offer me a Christmas present the release of several dozen U.S. citizens arrested as spies and saboteurs after the revolution. The Cuban government considered all of them CIA operatives. Three of them actually were. At the eleventh hour of the Bay of Pigs prisoner talks, the CIA had asked Donovan to add the U.S. prisoners to his negotiating agenda with Castro. Jesus Christ, Donovan complained to Kennedy associate John Nolan when he got the request. I did the loaves and fishes and now they want me to walk on water, too. Castro demurred on releasing the U.S. prisoners, along with the brigade members, but he left the door open for future talks, if the shipments of food and medicines continued smoothly. You and I have always dealt together in good faith, Castro said. For this reason, you are entitled to say that if the present negotiation is carried out in good faith— you have my pledge of an early review of every American case for amnesty in the near future. In their last substantive conversation before Donovan returned to the States, the two again expressed their mutual respect. I want you to know that I appreciate your cooperation in many things throughout our negotiations, Donovan told Castro. He then paid a high compliment to Cuba's maximum leader. You have been very correct in your dealings with me. Fidel returned the favor, telling Donovan that he was more than a skilled negotiator. He was an American from whom Castro could learn. He invited Donovan to come back over the winter with his family for a vacation in a Baradero villa. I would like to come out, and you, Vallejo, and I will discuss the entire future of Cuba and Latin America and their relations with the United States. Castro continued, I believe that we want the same things and the question is how to accomplish this. On January 25th, Donovan returned to Cuba for what he described as the most cordial and intimate meeting to date with Castro. Indeed, Castro welcomed him as a friend and a hero. During a visit to a medical school, Fidel led 300 students in chanting, Viva Donovan! The two agreed to a prisoner exchange. Castro would release the U.S. citizens, and in return the U.S. would release four Cubans one convicted of second-degree murder in the accidental shooting of a nine-year-old Venezuelan girl during a melee with anti-Castro Cubans in September 1960, 
and three arrested in the fall of 1962 on charges of plotting acts of sabotage in New York. Castro invited Donovan to return to Cuba in March to finalize the exchange and indicated that he wished to talk at length about the future of Cuba and international relations. As Donovan boarded his plane to Miami, Fidel's aide-de-camp, René Vallejo, provided a clue as to what was on Castro's mind. Vallejo, Donovan reported to the State Department and the CIA the next day, broached the subject of re-establishing diplomatic relations with the U.S. The debriefing report on Donovan's trip looked interesting, President Kennedy remarked when he read it. Castro's clear readiness to discuss better bilateral relations and the evident rapport between him and Donovan caught the attention of Kennedy and his top aides. As Donovan prepared to pursue his shuttle diplomacy in the spring of 1963, U.S. officials began evaluating the potential for using him as an intermediary to talk to Castro about broader U.S.-Cuban relations. As the agency most responsible for handling Donovan's mission, the CIA drafted its own proposed instructions for James Donovan. The United States had missed its opportunity to overthrow Castro by force during the missile crisis, when the provocation was obvious and clearly demonstrable to the world, the CIA lamented, and Castro was too strong to be overthrown by exiles without direct U.S. military intervention. Therefore, Political warfare to persuade Castro to break with the communists and restore some form of relations with the United States had become an obvious option. There seems to be some possibility that Castro might be weaned away from the communists if his idealism, his nationalism, and his vanity were all properly catered to, according to the CIA drafters. This is where Donovan comes in. His time with Castro will provide the United States government an invaluable opportunity to affect the course of events in Cuba. The CIA's instructions addressed three potentialities of the Castro discussions. First, Castro should be told that he must get the Russians out of Cuba lock, stock, and barrel. This theme should bear some success with Castro, because he is beyond question disillusioned with his Soviet friends as a result of their removing the missiles and bombers, apparently without consultation or notice. Second, Castro must agree to stop all communist subversion efforts directed at Latin America. There is hope in this line also. At his last meeting, he told Donovan that he thought there was the possibility of reform in Latin America without revolution between now and 1970. He must recognize that the Alliance for Progress has many of the same objectives as his revolution. Third, Castro should be persuaded to throw the communists out of his government and to renounce his Marxist-Leninist thesis. As far as getting rid of his communist associates is concerned, there are some indications that there are splits in the Cuban hierarchy. Further, Castro can be given plenty of illustrations of the dangers of his position and the fact that if he doesn't get rid of the others, they will inevitably get rid of him. If Castro agreed to all these things, the CIA instructed, Donovan could make the vague suggestion that Washington would consider softening its hostile policies toward Cuba. But if the carrots did not work, Donovan could always return to the threat of the stick. The CIA recommended that he paint for Castro a glowing picture of what could be done for Cuba as a friend of the United States in contrast with the permanently black picture that will prevail, with only one ultimate result, if Cuba continues to make the United States her enemy. Both the State Department and the White House also took up the issue of Donovan's instructions. 
The State Department's Cuba desk officer, Robert Hurwich, suggested that Donovan go to Cuba for a week-long walk on the beach with Castro, with the following instructions. Only two things are non-negotiable. One, Cuba's ties with the Sino-Soviet bloc, and two, Cuba's interference with the hemisphere. Hurwich's concept, as Gordon Chase reported to McGeorge Bundy, was that Donovan would act as a transmitter to the U.S. government of any proposals Castro might make in response to this line. But when Bundy briefed the president on this strategy, Kennedy overruled it as too stringent. He wanted a more flexible approach. The president does not agree that we should make the breaking of Sino-Soviet ties a non-negotiable point, stated a March 4, 1963 memorandum from Bundy, recording Kennedy's reaction. We don't want to present Castro with a condition that he obviously cannot fulfill. We should start thinking along more flexible lines. In addition, Kennedy recommended giving Donovan some flies to dangle in front of Castro. The president's surprising position must be kept close to the vest, the top-secret eyes-only memo advised. The president himself is very interested in this one. The president's interest was held so close to the vest that Donovan apparently never received the green light to fully engage Castro on broader talks. The historical record reveals no indication that he was briefed on President Kennedy's desire for a more flexible approach. Instead, on March 12th, Donovan received negotiating instructions from Robert Kennedy to obtain the release of all U.S. citizens in prison, but to avoid raising broader U.S.-Cuban relations. You should not initiate any discussions of a political nature with Castro, the Attorney General told Donovan. Should Castro initiate such discussions, you should listen carefully, but reply only the minimum that common courtesy would dictate. When Donovan returned to Havana on March 14th, his talks with Castro focused on the fate of nine additional imprisoned U.S. citizens, hapless skin-divers whose life raft had washed up on a Cuban beach after their boat sank. If Donovan could convince him that they were not saboteurs, Castro said, he would let them go. In their negotiations, they agreed to avoid defining the exchange as a prisoner swap. Castro would grant clemency to the American prisoners in recognition of the final April shipments of medicine from the Bay of Pigs deal. The United States would subsequently release the four Cuban prisoners, also as an act of clemency. When Donovan left, Castro allowed him to take two American women, Geraldine Shama and Martha O'Neill, who both had been jailed in 1960 for counter-revolutionary activities, back to Miami as a gesture of goodwill. Donovan returned to Havana on April 5th. In hopes of finalizing the prisoner exchange, he brought three diplomatic props, his teenage son, who he hoped would inspire confidence and make a favorable impression on Castro the now-famous scuba-diving wetsuit that the CIA's Directorate of Operations had wanted to contaminate with a toxic poison as a gift for Castro, and the page-proofs of a forthcoming article in The Nation magazine titled How Meta-Diplomacy Works, James Donovan and Castro, which highlighted the potential for the prisoner exchange to set the stage for some sort of conciliation between the American and Cuban people. Castro responded positively. During their four-day visit, he took Donovan and his son on a fishing expedition to the Bay of Pigs. Fidel personally speared fifteen fish, one of them a forty-pounder, gave them a tour of a new crocodile farm nearby, and arranged for them to attend a baseball game. The negotiations also progressed. 
Despite his instructions not to raise the broader issues of bilateral ties, Donovan deftly used the Nation article to dangle the prospect of normalization of relations if the prisoner release succeeded. During a discussion with Castro that lasted from 2.15 to 6.30 a.m., Donovan actually read the Nation story out loud, with René Vallejo translating. Written by veteran New York Times magazine reporter Gertrude Samuels, it quoted Donovan as stating, I do believe that in these negotiations there does lie the greatest hope of creating some equitable solution to the problems now affecting relations between the two countries. The article, along with others in Look, Life, and the Saturday Evening Post, Donovan suggested to Castro, reflected a shift in American attitudes toward the Cuban Revolution in the aftermath of the Missile Crisis. The average citizen, Donovan said, simply could not see involving the U.S. in nuclear warfare to vaguely restore Cuba to Batistaville. Castro was extremely interested, Donovan later recounted in his CIA briefing. He thought that this article was excellent, that it showed wisdom. Their discussion of the Nation article led to the first serious conversation about how to restore relations between Washington and Havana. For the first time, Fidel Castro personally expressed his interest directly to a U.S. representative. He suggested that perhaps the time was here for the Kennedy administration to adopt a more statesmanlike approach to Cuba policy. If any relations were to commence between the U.S. and Cuba, Fidel wanted to know, how would it come about and what would be involved? In his debriefing at the CIA, Donovan noted his candid and blunt response. I told him that I was sure that if anything such as this occurred, that just as no one in the U.S. wanted to see him as a satellite of Russia and wind up as another Bulgaria or Romania, so too I didn't think that the people of the U.S. were intent on his being a satellite of the U.S., that the integrity of the revolution would be respected as long as his every effort was dedicated to the betterment of the Cuban people and not being a pawn of Russia and not trying to ferment internal conflict in the other Latin American countries. Castro then returned to his central concern. He said, Well, in view of the past history on both sides here, the problem of how to inaugurate any relations was a very difficult one. Donovan replied, So I said to him, Well, do you, are you familiar with porcupines? And this had to be translated by Vallejo, but they finally agreed that he did understand porcupines. So I said, Now, do you know how porcupines make love? And he said, No. And I said, Well, the answer is, Very carefully. And that's how you and the U.S. would have to get into this. As Donovan told Castro, I think an accommodation of views could be worked out. In the end, the Cuban leader seemed convinced by Donovan's arguments that the prisoners created a stumbling block to better relations with the United States. Now that you've shown me the article in The Nation, Castro told Donovan, I am prepared to take a chance on your analysis of the situation and your prophecies on what should happen. Holding the Americans as a bargaining asset was not in Cuba's interest, he conceded, because perhaps it's preventing something more constructive from being accomplished. He agreed to immediately free the nine skin divers and one U.S. missionary for Donovan to take back to Florida. As for the remaining American prisoners, Castro promised that if Donovan returned on April 22nd, I'll release all of them to you. Two weeks later, Donovan returned to Havana one last time. As promised, Castro released 27 more U.S. citizens, 
Twenty-one of them, including the three CIA agents, returned with the U.S. negotiator to an Air Force base near Miami. The same day, Kennedy's Justice Department released the four Cubans in New York in the national interest. They were flown to Florida and then repatriated to Havana. In all, Donovan's protracted negotiations with Castro yielded impressive results. The release of 1,113 Bay of Pigs prisoners, along with several thousand of their relatives, and 39 U.S. citizens, among them three CIA agents. More importantly, he established himself as the first U.S. emissary to win Castro's trust and respect, personally creating a foundation for future dialogue between Havana and Washington. And during the last hours of his last trip, Donovan inadvertently set the stage for another cycle of back-channel talks between Cuba and the United States. He introduced Fidel Castro to a striking blonde reporter from ABC News named Lisa Howard. The Lisa Howard Initiative Lisa Howard was the Barbara Walters of her day, a gender-barrier-breaking correspondent for ABC News with a special forte for obtaining exclusive, publicity-generating interviews with world-class political leaders. Her rise to stardom began as a Hollywood actress, known for roles as the vixen in a variety of movies and television shows, including CBS's popular soap operas Edge of Night and As the World Turns. In 1953, People Today dubbed her TV's First Lady of Sin. According to the pre-feminist era profile, Though a looker, 5 foot 3 inches, 109 pounds, 35, 23, 35, from bust to hips, Miss Sin prefers to think of herself as the sensitive intellectual type who is going places. Indeed, a far different profile of her ten years later in Time magazine reflected how far she had traveled. Lisa Howard has become television's first and only woman with her own network news show. Lisa has achieved this distinction by scrambling harder than six monkeys peeling the same banana. Time reported. Political leaders, domestic and foreign, have learned there is no dodging Lisa Howard. Nikita Khrushchev became the first world leader to learn that lesson. After Howard emerged on the media scene as a volunteer stringer for the Mutual Radio Network in 1960, she became the first U.S. journalist to score a substantive interview with the Soviet premier by sneaking into the Russian mission in New York disguised as a washerwoman and then following Khrushchev out to his limousine to convince him to grant her an exclusive. She then covered the 1960 Democratic National Convention, obtaining a major interview with the young senator from Massachusetts, John F. Kennedy. Since she already knew Kennedy and Khrushchev, more importantly, they knew her, ABC News hired her as their first female correspondent to cover the 1961 Vienna summit. There, she ambushed Khrushchev in a public park, thrust a microphone into his face, and, with the cameras rolling, grabbed Foreign Minister Andrei Gromyko to translate for the Soviet leader. As a reward for her success, ABC promoted her to anchor her own television news program, Lisa Howard and News with a Woman's Touch. In 1962, Howard set her sights on another world-famous communist leader, Fidel Castro. She began peppering Cuba's UN mission with requests to go to Havana. I am the girl who interviewed Khrushchev, she reminded Cuban officials. The American public wanted to know more about the Cuban Revolution, she wrote. An ABC interview with Castro would serve the interests of both countries. 
In April 1963, Howard finally received permission to bring a TV crew to Cuba. But for several weeks, Castro ignored her. In desperation, she prevailed on Donovan, who was in Havana on his last trip, to arrange an introduction. Howard begged me to use my influence with Castro to gain an interview for her, Donovan recalled in his unpublished memoir. I went about it by whetting Castro's natural masculine curiosity and vanity. I told him there was a beautiful blonde dish of a reporter wanting to interview him, and would he give her some of his time? Castro did. He granted Howard an exclusive televised interview at the Hotel Riviera, his first with the U.S. network since 1959, and a major journalistic coup for ABC News. When Howard's hour-long TV special, Fidel Castro, Self-Portrait, aired on May 10, 1963, it generated instant headlines across the nation. Castro Applauds U.S. Peace Steps was the title of the New York Times front-page story. Castro makes overt hints he wants Kennedy parlay, the Chicago Sun-Times announced. Castro would like to talk with Kennedy, blared the headline of the Cleveland Plain Dealer. During the